Um, is it picking up? It is. Uh, so. Um, <coughs> oh, that's better. Oh, yes, it did pick all of that up. Oh, it picked it up. <laughs> I'm Steve Gaynor, and you're listening to Tone Control, conversations with video game developers. And today, I am in the Airbnb with Richard Lemarchand, uh, late of Naughty Dog, and currently a professor, assistant professor, full-on professor. Associate professor. Associate professor. Poised exactly halfway between assistant and full professor. (laughs) (laughs) At uh, at the University of Southern California uh, here in LA. How's it going? That's right. It's going really well, thanks, Steve. It's really good to see you today. Yeah. Thanks for for coming and spending some time with me. I'm very excited to be on Tone Control. Well, good. Yeah. uh, I, I appreciate that. I... I hope that, uh, I don't know, maybe some of your students have gotten something out of the first season uh, of the show yeah, over time and stuff like that. Your show is well-known and well-liked. Oh, yeah, cool. It's terrific. Awesome. No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. Like, this, the audience is sort of students. Uh-huh. You know, I, I, like, my ideal audience is... My ideal audience is probably somebody who actually hasn't even realized they could go to USC for games yet. Somebody mm-hmm. who, you know, they hear mm-hmm. from somebody like yeah. you... That is made stuff that they're excited about, and they realize that it's just a person, and maybe they could do it too. So it's right, it's cool right, to know right. that, that your students are, are listening to it as well. But um, uh, yeah, I just want to talk to you today. Like we've known each other for for quite some time. Yeah. We've known each other mostly through GDC because mm-hmm. um, you do a lot of talk advising and track advising at GDC, right? Actually, no. That's something that I have never really been able to find time for. Oh, okay. I'm very much in awe of all of those people who <laughs> do do the track advising. Okay. Um, I, uh, I mean, my involvement with GDC really just started as an attendee. Yeah. Actually, it began a little bit before that, when I was still back in England. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one day, I uh, came across a friend who was photocopying a stack of the GDC proceedings. They used <laughs> to give out these um, telephone directory-sized um, uh, collections of the... They were kind of like printouts of the presentations. Oh, really? Sometimes of the scripts, kind of modeled on the, you know, the academic model. Of yeah. a, an academic conference proceedings, sure. and uh, yeah, he was uh, making a, a, a copy, uh, and I had him run off an uh, extra copy, and uh, uh, and that was my first awareness of GDC. Okay, that there was yeah. this, this meeting that was happening with game developers coming from all around the world. Yeah, and well, you've at least been like. You've been my talk advisor at least once. You run the the microtalks at GDC, right? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, and so that's what I was going on to say. So after having been lucky enough to give a few GDC talks myself, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, I proposed a session modeled on my love of this weird short talk format. You know, where yeah. you get a certain number of slides, but the slides advance on their own automatically. Right. There's a name for it, right? Um, there, it has a couple of different names. There's okay. a couple of different versions. Of okay. It, yeah. yeah. And uh, and I changed the format slightly to make sure. the GDC microtalks um, because I thought it was very game-like, you know. Yeah, the idea no, that's true. That the slides are kind of off on their own steam train chugging yeah. down the track and you have to keep somehow up keep them, up with them right? and yeah. synchronize with them. It seemed very <laughs> playful. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like um, uh, this year, 
the GDC micro talks are going to be in their tenth year. Oh, awesome! Uh, yeah. And you know, we have like nine new speakers every year, yeah. and me kind of emceeing and right. curating, putting together the whole thing. Yeah, which is yeah, why you got the impression that I was, uh, I guess, an advisor because that's often what the GDC advisors do, right? Is to right. coach the speakers through the creation of their talks. Yeah, but yeah, the micro talks at GDC are always really popular, and it's a really cool way to get very focused thoughts from a diverse group of people working in games from indie to AAA to in between and, and right. it's, it's a fascinating place to sit down for an hour and just hear all these perspectives all like rapid fire. Well I'm really glad to hear you say that because that was my impression when I started going to these kinds of talks you know uh, you can pack so much information uh, into uh, a single hour or a single evening Yeah. Uh, and um, if you don't like a particular talk that's okay because there'll be another It'll one be over. <laughs> in a minute Yeah. but I really you know I have always really valued the diversity of viewpoint at GDC that was how I learned so much coming into contact with other kinds of game makers yeah. people from outside the sort of immediate context that I was working in for sure and it's a lot of fun curating the lineup every year to get a real spread of different kinds of experience um, you know uh, uh, people who have been in the industry for 30 years some people who have only been in the industry for a few years yeah. people from um, AAA and indie and educators and art yeah. game makers and critics yeah. uh, and and uh, yeah, it's uh, that's true because yeah, you'll you'll have people in it sometimes that are are mostly like essayists or yeah, yeah or work in yeah. academia or, or yeah, and yeah, are, yeah. are more uh, philosophical about it or yeah. yeah, it's a lot like making a game design mixtape. Yeah, I always think <laughs> all the way down to the sequencing. Yeah, you know? right, right. Um, so you know, um, as as listeners can tell, um, you're a native. Of Los Angeles. <laughs> well, hell, I am. <laughs> You're a native of the uh, John Wayne impression yes. school, apparently. My Uncle David uh, taught me my John Wayne impression. Thank you very much for recognizing it was John Wayne. Many people cannot. I know it's not very good. <laughs> so, so did did you start? Uh, did you start in your game design or game development career in England? I did actually. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, so how did you? How did you originally get into? games back in, in jolly old England? Well, I had been into video games since probably the age of four or five. Since before arcade games were digital, actually. There was a game called Kill a Shark uh, <laughs> that used a zoetrope for the animating graphics. Oh, really? And it was, yeah, it was pre-digital electronics. It wow. was all kind of transistors and tubes yeah, inside yeah. of it. And my dad kind of picked me up and held me up so that I could grab the little metal pistol that yeah. you had to shoot the sharks with. Wow. Uh, and uh, I was just captivated by the idea that this machine could give you a kind of storytelling experience that you could interact with. Yeah. I wouldn't have articulated it in those right. terms. Yeah. Um, but you were seeing these images and, and you were responding to them and they were responding to you. And, that's, that's and it just powerful. seemed like uh, I was already entranced by the magical world of television and cinema of course yeah and i yeah. think that you know i was always a kid with a busy mind a lot of curiosity <laughs> a lot of uh, uh and and i was easily transported by imagination yeah. um and so i mean that was the beginning of my obsession with video games really yeah. so i was always in the arcade um you know growing up in the 70s in england didn't have very easy access to right. uh, arcades there was eventually a space invaders machine in the local chip shop <laughs> but where i would mainly get to play games was on summer holidays because okay. all the seaside summer holiday resorts right. would have a big amusement arcade. So yeah. I'd save up my kind of 5p and 10p pieces all year yeah. and go and pump them into <laughs> machines in a frenzied two-week period That's, that's awesome. Yeah, no, that's funny. Because I, I grew up um, 
having a good uh, access to a good variety of different kinds of games because I you know I had uh, uh-huh. I had like a you know NES at home and I right, had a Commodore yeah. 64 mm-hmm. at home but I also spent a lot of time going to arcades because there were games right. in the arcades that you just couldn't play at home in any form especially in the right. 80s you know when right. like the, the hardware in an arcade machine was just straight up more powerful than mm-hmm. you could put at home. Or stuff like light gun games or other yeah. kind of like specialized hardware pedal game, you know, like car, you know, steering wheel games and stuff like Novel that. Novel interface kind right. of stuff, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Which I really appreciated. That's first Star Wars uh, vector graphics mm-hmm. game. There was a stand up version, but there was also but there was a, a sit down version. Yeah. Which, I mean, you know, I was always a big one for kind of um, role play yeah. playing when yeah. I was a kid, dressing up as Han Solo and Doctor Who and running around the woods, right? And so yeah. just being able to get into this thing that I could imagine was an X-wing cockpit. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I've really I've, I've been in that uh, in one of those cabinets, a, a nice restored version of one of the sit-down cabinets. Of have, the... have you played one of the new Star Wars motion platform? I haven't games. played any of the newer stuff. They have a big wraparound screen. Oh wow, super cool. Check That's it awesome. out sometime. Okay. But anyway, so um, and then of course we got one of those early kind of uh, home. TV video game um, things in the late 70s probably like a, like a Vectrex or something um, like that I can't it was an off brand thing right, probably sure. branded with some British department store or something right, like right, that with right. a light gun okay. and a couple of paddles yeah. and then soon after that my in the early 80s my parents uh, brought, bought my brother and I a ZX81 okay. which was this yeah. um, black and white computer British made yeah. uh, uh, and uh, had exactly 1k of memory <laughs> yeah. that you could expand to a full 16K with uh, with a memory pack. That's that 16X. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, and then that was how I began to be able to play uh, games like Galaxians and Frogger yeah, at yeah. home. So A, I've only seen that written in text, but I, I should have known that British people would say it's the ZX. Because uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, <laughs> is that the same thing as a, as a ZX Spectrum? So the Spectrum was the next generation. Because okay. the that's Spectrum, the main thing that I've heard yeah. it as, yeah. And that had color and sound. Right. Uh, 8-bit color okay. and sound yeah. and that was when things really took off in my kind of teenage gaming career yeah uh, that was when I began I'd started programming just a little bit on the ZX81 okay. and then uh, did more on the spectrum but there and just that was a, this incredible renaissance in British game design European game design American yeah. game design right or sure. uh, Australian game design one of my favorite games back then was a text adventure of the Hobbit made by oh. Melbourne house there really? was the first text adventure to have like a graphical accompaniment Cool. to some of the screen huh. some of the screens yeah and um, yeah games like uh, Manic Miner and the follow up Jet Set Willy that was kind of an open world mm-hmm. platform game yeah 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 and just loads of weird wonderful stuff lots of uh, uh, arcade game um, uh, sort of uh, clones and copies right uh, and lots and lots of emerging adventure game stuff right as well so what why did you have access to this hardware in your home when you were growing up like what did your parents do really uh so my my uh it, it was kind of a big deal that we had a home computer actually yeah um you know i come from pretty modest beginnings my parents uh were civil servants uh, okay. and they worked for a government agency called the land registry that administers property boundaries in the uk okay um so um while my dad was more of an administrator my mum was actually a cartographer oh cool and my mum uh my, my dad has a great love of kind of history. Uh, my mum is very arty 
and she's a seamstress and she does embroidery oh, wow. and she um, has beautiful handwriting. She taught herself mm. calligraphy at one point. Wow. And I think that this is sort of where my love for creativity comes from. Yeah. Uh, as well as my love for knowledge, you know, from both of my folks. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's so interesting. And so, yeah, especially that map making aspect of right. my mum's job. You know, of course, like I made maps nearly every day in my career yeah. of one kind or another. Yeah. So, um, oh, so yeah. They, that, that's so direct. That's so uh, funny. Like, it really I is mean, kind of on the nose. Well, I mean, it? yeah, for, especially for for you who ended up, uh, you know, helping to, to bring Uncharted to life. Right. Being the yeah. son of a historian and a cartographer. <laughs> right. Like, couldn't amazing. Be, couldn't be better. Um, I mean, yeah. But so, so were you just very interested in computers and you wanted a, yeah. a, a ZX81 uh, to um, play games on and all both that? Both my brother and I, like, okay. begged our parents for these machines and they kind of scrimped and saved because yeah. um, they were really expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the time. Well, I mean, that's a great, that, that opened up a great opportunity for you to learn at a young age how to interface with a, I mean, I think that's something that, that is like really, that it's, it's uncommon for me to meet someone who makes games who through whatever means mm -hmm. didn't have access to computers and just sort of like as a child right. figuring out how to make something mm -hmm. happen on them. And it, it's, it's really a great privilege to be able to say like, yeah, when I was eight I could just try programming a thing right because yeah, the thing yeah. is there and you can, and mm. I, I think so I, um, I interviewed Nina uh, from Fulbright and mm. you know she I think that you know when she was younger she had a computer and like taught herself to like make web pages you know but yeah. that's like an, that's a way in to being like I can do stuff on the computer and this thing I made is on it yeah, right yeah, and yeah. carrying that forward is, is really crucial I I've thought uh, a lot about this actually and I kind of go back and forth in my thinking um, about when uh, uh, I think generally access to any kind of uh, technology and any kind of mode of creativity is superb and I would wish for as much of that as is possible for all children uh, and I think that there are big um, uh, questions and problems of access you yeah. know um, uh, you know there are certainly uh, many people in the world in this country who are far far uh, worse off economically than uh, my family was growing right. up, you know, yeah. and I would wish for more access for yeah. those people. Well, and it's something where, like, in the present day, you know, almost anyone in any, you know, stratum of the 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 economy in America or, or in Europe probably has access to a smartphone now. Mm -hmm. But that's not a method of production; it's only a method of consumption and communication like yeah. that's that's different than having the thing that you can make your own apps for your phone right with, right right yeah um, so yeah it's still it's still a very stratified kind of way of being able to access these things and there are some challenging issues at play there I mean uh, I am part of a generation who obviously grew up in Europe and came to the States in the 90s yeah. to help make games and I don't know how true this is whether this is anecdotal but part of the received wisdom for that um, movement of talent from Europe to the States is that um, home consoles were not as big in Europe as they were in the United States okay. and so people here in North America could only consume games yeah. whereas we also had the opportunity to tinker around right. trying to make them yeah I mean being a being a PC gamer as a kid gives you much more access to saying like oh I can make a mod for this or I can make a map for this or I can yeah. Yeah. you know <coughs> whatever right, right. Um, yeah, yeah. certainly for people of your generation the terrain is completely different right right um, 
so so you were playing you were playing stuff and you were starting to the uh, program your own stuff yeah and then like although I didn't really think of it that way uh, okay. you know I mainly I did some programming in basic yeah and I wanted to be a programmer I had a friend who was a couple of friends who were really good programmers yeah could really make the machine sit up and, and do things yeah I felt very limited I could really only kind of switch out strings right uh, yeah a lot of the way that we got games in the 80s was by typing in listings from magazines that we would buy yeah they would actually have the code just printed in the back of the magazine you copied it over right by hand exactly yeah. exactly <laughs> and uh, you know this was kind of my first exposure to programming yeah uh, I think it's the way that many people learn programming today actually is by copying out by uh, transcribing something that they don't necessarily understand how it works yeah. um, but just the act of transcribing it is the beginning of the learning mm -hmm. so I turned a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy text adventure into a Doctor Who text adventure <laughs> substituting out the names of all the strings so, so, uh, so you were a nerd right? so in case that wasn't completely clear Steve yes <laughs> Those were two of my main uh, interests at the time. Um, but I still found myself very frustrated uh, because my buddies, um, I think they maybe tried to teach me programming and I just wasn't getting it. And in fact, it wasn't until the early 2000s when I was working at Crystal Dynamics when I took a, a C class that okay. the penny began to drop for me. That alongside all of the scripting work that right. I did uh, on the job. Yeah. But by my late teens, I kind of drifted away from games a little bit. I think there was a golf there for a minute where graphics uh, and I'm a terrible sucker for great graphics and sound graphics weren't really accelerating in a way that kept up with my interest yeah I kept playing games in the arcade all throughout that time okay but it wasn't until I was uh, in college and the Commodore Amiga uh, and the Atari ST came out that suddenly my um, interest was rekindled okay uh, and that was the uh, time when the scum system games were coming out mm -hmm. and so you know yeah. we were playing Mark Island, uh, Monkey Island, Day of the Tentacle, and, exactly. and Maniac Mansion. Sure, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And suddenly I was like, oh wow, yeah, this is really happening for me again. I, I think that, you know, for me as well, you know, even even though, you know, I'm, I, I was much younger than you at the time, you know, I was, I had been playing games my whole life, and when I got introduced to, actually first to Sierra Adventure Games, but then mm -hmm. to LucasArts Adventure Games, yeah. you know, I had come from playing Nintendo games, all, you know, almost exclusively, and mm -hmm. then it was actually Maniac Mansion on the NES mm. that because they mm. ported it to NES, yeah. and so I played it, and I was like, "This is like nothing that I've played before." And my friend who I lived next door to was like, "Well, there's a bunch more computers like there are a bunch more games like this on my dad's uh -huh. computer. Oh, uh -huh. you should try, uh -huh. you know, Space Quest and and King's right, Quest and Quest right. for Glory." And so anyway, going into that that adventure game space at that time, in contrast, I think it was striking to be like, "Oh wait, this is about like." story and character and presentation right. and being in a world mm -hmm. in a way that you know maybe you were in Zelda or something but right. also very differently and in a lot of ways a little bit I guess more intimately right you know? and I think that yeah absolutely uh, all of what you're saying is true I mean you know what I was doing in my later teens was mainly being obsessive about pop music uh, yeah. and uh, the novel 
as an art form. I really right. got into literature at about yeah. the age of 16. I started reading kind of non-genre stuff. Yeah. And then cinema as well. I yeah. mean, I'd been a cinema fan, of course, all throughout my right. childhood. And round about that same age, 16, 17, I started to discover um, uh, filmmakers like David Lynch, you know, okay. uh, and Peter Greenaway, the British filmmaker, okay. whose movies were on TV a lot. And then, so in that moment, you know, already with this developing appreciation for the kind of literary arts and uh, storytelling, meaningful storytelling, uh, and this, um, you know, kind of dormant love for action gameplay. Uh, and that was what we were also playing a lot in college. Um, we had a gauntlet machine in the bar. Oh, yeah, yeah. I played Bionic Commando and a little known game called the New Zealand Story uh, in the college bar. Do you know that game? No, uh-huh. New Zealand Story is a Taito game. I think it is much overlooked. Huh. Um, my friend Margaret Robertson describes this game as having a very interesting narrative premise. The narrative premise of the game is uh, I am a Kiwi and help, my friends have been stolen by a walrus. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, so, and by God, you did your best to help them, <laughs> didn't, didn't you? But, and that doesn't sound like the most compelling premise for, for a game. It's yeah. kind of beautiful in its simplicity. Yeah, yeah. But the great thing about it was that it was a, um, uh, a game whose levels were gated by transformative abilities okay. that you um, received from the vehicles of the enemies. Okay. So the enemy, it was a kind of abstract... Uh, a quite twee cartoony game with bears riding mechanical swans coming towards <laughs> you and if you manage to um, with your little kiwi bow and arrow that you had shoot the bear but not hit the mechanical swan the swan would kind of um, settle down to the ground and you could jump on it and right. it around as a vehicle okay. uh, and there were a number of different vehicles it almost sounds like a little bit joust inspired and, with uh, the rider versus the mount and, and so um, each of the mounts had a different game uh, mechanical ability and one of them was joust derived oh, because okay. it was a kind of tap to ascend and mm. otherwise you constantly descend mechanic huh. so it was kind of skill based yeah. and there was all this kind of fine motor control stuff but it felt um, more expansive in its interaction scheme than a lot of action games at yeah. the time did just by the kind of simple um, you know what we would now think of as the kind of the systemic richness provided by the combinatorics of the right. mechanics that right. almost every mechanic had a relationship with every other mechanic Cool. So it's kind of large. No, it's so interesting. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard of that game. That's no, really it's, fascinating. It's really uh, obscure. And but it was a game. Though that generation of games, like late '80s games, were getting ported on mass to these kind of emerging platforms that now had 16-bit color yeah. and you know high sample rate sound and more, yeah. more memory. And so it was really the confluence of those two things. Kind of you know my increasing understanding with my adult mind coming to bear on the interestingness of action game mechanics and all of the sort of storytelling possibilities afforded by good writing, good animation. And I was like, wow, this is going to be an emerging um, interactive narrative art form. Yeah, yeah. So, So how did you find your way into actually being involved with games then? So I went to see the university careers officer just as I was graduating and I said I want to be a video game developer and he said can you program and I stupidly said no and, he said, and, uh, and can you do computer art and even though I'd been doing desktop publishing on the college Apple computer for like yeah. a year and a half I said no uh, because you know I'd never done anything I was bedazzled by the yeah. kinds of games I was playing at the yeah. time you didn't think of it as being able to do the things that you were seeing in games there was a huge right? gap yeah. between what I perceived as my own experience and what I 
perceived of as the skills you needed to do this thing. Yeah. Uh, and he said, well, hard luck then, son, <laughs> on your way. <laughs> And I moved back in with my parents. And Encouraging. I just that, uh, just that, that, that famous British warmth. <laughs> Going to warmth and optimism. <laughs> well, and then on my end, the kind of self-deprecating, right. you know, uh, nothing is possible attitude that you sometimes uh, inherit. Um, and I moved back home and I did terrible temping jobs for a year. Um, mm. But I saved up a bit of money. I, tr- I came to the States and traveled for the first time. Oh, really? Uh, for three months. Just that time. Just- just experiencing different had, parts of America? I had a friend in San Francisco cool. that I'd made on a summer trip in, in Europe. Oh, okay. uh, and um, a school friend of mine was traveling over here and she said, hey, you know, I'm going to do this thing. Why don't you come along? And yeah. so with a little bit of help from my folks, it happened. That was a very um, uh, horizons expanding, as you can imagine. Yeah. And a big part of why I felt confident in moving to the States when mm, I did. Right. I already spent some time here. So that was when you were just in your early 20s. That was right after your, yeah. or a year after your like school or something. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but then one day, after a year of living at home, my mum brought me the open local newspaper and said, "Look at this!" And it was a full-page advert. Uh, wanted game programmers, game designers in two columns. Yeah. Uh, and I think I'd kind of internalised some of this uh, disappointment of this experience and I said I am very unlikely to get that and I will always be grateful to my mum because she said look what have you got to lose Uh, write them a cover letter a good cover letter send in your resume who knows what's going to happen and uh, thank heavens I did because the next thing I knew I had an interview and then I had my first industry job uh, at Microprose an American oh. company ironically <laughs> yeah. that had an English office they were, up, up until that point they'd mainly been doing conversions of the IBM PC original Microprose titles to these various kind of home computer yeah, formats to Amiga and in, stuff that was Europe. bigger in Europe yeah exactly okay. but they were just starting to make uh, original games yeah uh, at the time, uh, one of them being uh, the original XCOM. I was going to say that must have been around the XCOM time because I know that, that was a Microprose title. Um, Microprose published anyway, right? Yeah, yeah, and kind of co-developed actually. It okay. was developed by the Gollop brothers, right. uh, who had made this awesome game uh, called Laser Squad. That was kind of the turn-based uh, strategic combat precursor to yeah. XCOM. Right, right. Um, some of the art was actually done in-house at Microprose. Oh, okay. Uh, and while I didn't work directly on the game, I did get to play tested a bunch and all my friends cool. were working on it so <laughs> that's that was awesome very exciting to uh, be around but yeah I was very lucky they were willing to take a chance on me you know I was uh, um, sort of proactive and positivistic enough to uh, uh, just in all honesty kind of blag my way in right kind of I did believe I genuinely believed that I could do it if they only gave me a chance and I um, uh, the day before I uh, uh, did some designs I draw a little bit uh, yeah and so I, I did some designs for a couple of different game concepts, just my kind of rookie conception of what a game proposal might be like. Yeah. I think they'd asked me to do this actually, to cool. bring them in. And um, they took me on on a trial basis and I never looked back. Yeah. I just yeah. seized that opportunity uh, with both hands. Yeah. And, so uh, what were you actually doing day to day there? At so um, I had a good uh, training period where they kind of they got me to play a bunch of games. Uh, they um, interrogated me about uh, what I thought the strengths and weaknesses of these uh, games were. They began to teach me practical skills, like they bought me a copy of Mavis Beacon Teaches Typing and <laughs> uh, made me learn to touch type. Yeah, um, yeah. Because of course, uh, part of my job was going to be documentation and you know okay. articulating the ideas of the game. I had really great mentors, uh, a group of game designers 
developers, um, most of whom had worked in some capacity or another for Games Workshop. Okay. You know, Games yeah, Workshop the, stuff. The Warhammer, Warhammer and all of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I'd grown up playing uh, Games Workshop games, of course. Okay. So I was very much in awe of these guys. Uh, guys uh, like Mike Brunton and Jim Bambra and Steve Hand and Graham Davis, each of whom uh, had a different skill set, each of whom just dump knowledge into me and I was soaking it up as quickly as I could. That's, I mean, that's great. That, that's, a, that's a good way to fast track uh, your understanding of, uh, of, the, of the, the craft. For sure, yeah, 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 yeah. And they seemed, you know, um, monstrously wise uh, to me at the time. And they, and, they, uh, and they are monstrously wise, but I was, where, where I was going with this was that they had maybe, you know, uh, five to ten years experience each yeah. uh, between them. Many of them had started doing professional game design work in their teens. Okay. As was the way of the industry, yeah, you know, yeah. this was the generation of the kind of the teenage D&D module writer, uh, the teenage right. uh, bedroom programmer yeah. uh, doing awesome stuff. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I just learned as much as I could. Yeah. So you were 22 and you're 23 and you felt way behind these guys. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I was on tenterhooks every day. That's so um, the first proper job they gave me was to be the designer for a conversion of the game F-15 Strike Eagle okay. uh, from the, uh, it was originally a PC title in, in uh, the, the original American version. They'd already ported it to the Amiga and the chip architecture of the Amiga, of the Amiga was almost identical to that of the Sega Genesis. Oh, okay. Uh, and so we did a port. And I think that was a really good early challenge because the original PC game used dozens of buttons for the yeah, input. You know, yeah. It was an old school flight sim. Yeah. And of course, we had just a tiny number of buttons on the Genesis controller. So yeah. it helped me start to think about interface and yeah. about usability. I mean, straight, like literally like... Three buttons and a D-pad, right? Unless you want to use the start or, or select we actually, button. Actually, we did use the the start button, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. As as an input, not just as a uh, pause uh, I call. Want to say I mean, I believe it. it. Did yeah, I mean, it, it yeah, probably yeah. wasn't even standardized that much that it had to be paused. You're making me point. want to look it up. Yeah, now. yeah. I, uh, I think that I I feel like I remember. I, I was not a Sega kid, but I feel like I remember seeing the box for that game in stores. Uh, so that's. That's interesting. I think we, um, yeah, uh, might have used uh, one of the buttons uh, as. Uh, I think we had to use the start button as pause, actually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. I think that was probably a TRC thing. Yeah. Okay. Even then. Yeah. Geez. God. I never. I never even thought about cert testing on like pre, you know, like PlayStation oh, consoles. Yeah, that was a shock to the system. Ugh. Having to go through all of that early yeah. lessons. Yeah. Having all your ducks in a row. Well, and having to. God, having to get it certified and then like duplicate it onto cartridges, mm -hmm. like, man, yep. just like the road from like we think our game is finished to it's yeah. actually to people actually playing it, not even it's actually in stores. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, that's I mean, it's that's whole other world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was drilled into me the sort of responsibility of what we were doing, the responsibility of the designer, you know, as the the audience's experience is in your hands, the business endeavor. Is to some degree in your hands. I mean, yeah. this was pre-CD-ROM, so shipping games uh, that were, uh, in the case of the PC games, duplicated onto discs. Yeah. Or in the case of these, uh, this first generation of console games we worked on, you know, flashed onto chips and then yeah. sealed inside of plastic boxes, <laughs> put inside of other plastic boxes, <laughs> put on trucks. Uh, and um, I mean, I think that helped me actually, even though it was 
absolutely terrifying, the weight of the responsibility for someone in their early 20s. Sure. It helped me take design seriously. At a time when I was beginning to wake up uh, to what design was in a kind of capital D sense, you know, sure. the design of the industrial designer, the architect, the typographer, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, how long were you working in the industry in England before it sounds like it was a good good number of years before you came over to the states. Yeah, it was like four years okay. uh, that I worked uh, over in the UK. I, I got uh, Microprose. I got to work on a couple of uh, platform games. Okay. Um, after we shipped F15 Strike Eagle, I, I made a game called Tinhead, working with a very small team. Huh. Uh, it was originally going to be called Waldo, but there was a concern about kind of IP overlap with the Where's Waldo. With Where's Waldo? Series. Yeah. <laughs> and our original idea for this game, and I still want to make this game someday is that uh, it would be a game a bit like was it Master Blaster for the NES where, where you were driving a, a tank car around, and then you could get out but then you could get out yeah. well we were going to make this game as if you were a cute robot kind of running around uh, the landscape and then at some point you could kind of hunker the robot down on its haunches yeah. uh, it looked kind of like a little uh, tin can okay, uh, yeah. in the original design <laughs> and the hatch would flip open and then a tiny little guy would get out <laughs> and you'd be able to go into pipes and yeah. cabin networks and right, stuff right. unfortunately because of uh, scoping the project we had to cut that down okay and eventually the project was canned okay. uh, and they weren't going to publish canned. it. I see what you did there. <laughs> you did it. I just, I just pointed it out. Uh, and, but, um, it, but it never saw the light of day. Uh, it eventually got published by a budget publishing company. Oh, okay, okay. Like after I moved to the States, actually. Yeah. And okay. I worked on another game after that that also was cancelled. Oh. This was at a time when um, the console market was no longer booming, but it was more unclear how to make money in that, okay. in that market. Yeah. So um, uh, it was, you know, kind of frustrating. Yeah, um, I imagine. But, um, you know, I decided I was ready for a move. A few of my friends had moved to other companies, and I sent out resumes, and one of the companies that I sent a resume to was Crystal Dynamics in yeah. Palo Alto in yeah. Northern yeah, California. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah, so you had been working at this, at, at Microprose, um, on, on yeah, a bunch of projects that kind of, you know, didn't, 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 meet the fate that you were hoping for and, and, and you had your kind of history with visiting America and all that, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what did you what did you hope for when you were like, I'm going to take this job and I'm going to move to America? And, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, this vision of games as an emerging art form, an emerging narrative form, just got stronger and stronger in the whole community that I was in throughout those early years at, at Microprose. Uh, and, of course, uh, CD-ROM had come along right. with its vastly expanded storage capacities, uh, which seemed uh, uh, like it was going to, and did, exactly solve all the challenges that we were facing trying to make narrative games on um, uh, consoles that maybe yeah. only had like half a meg or a megabyte of, of total storage capacity. Yeah. Like if you want any kind of voice mm-hmm. or music that didn't sound too chip tuny right. uh, or um, uh, uh, movies, videos, or those simply wouldn't fit on right. those little chips, but they certainly would fit on CD-ROMs. Yeah. So um, Crystal Dynamics was founded as a collaboration between the sort of best of Silicon Valley technology and game design skill and the storytelling ability of Hollywood. Yeah. And it was founded by Madeline Canepa, who is known in American game marketing circles as the mother of Sonic. 
Oh, okay. uh, Madeline was the person who brought Sonic the Hedgehog to the United States oh, okay. and founded a home in the market as huh. a product manager at Sega. Wow, okay. And Madeline got together with a guy called Strauss Zelnick, who's now oh, yeah. known as a game he, industry he executive. Runs 2K, I mean, I, yeah. I met him when I worked at 2K. Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but at the time, was a Wunderkind young executive at Fox. Uh, oh, okay. I believe in feature film. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, these uh, were the folks who uh, came together to found this new studio, Crystal Dynamics, uh, uh, whose name is a riff on the acronym CD. I thought probably, yeah. I, I, I never looked that up. But um, so I, before, just a couple of days ago, I interviewed um, Bruce Straley, who oh, you worked uh-huh. with. Yeah. So he was also talking about Crystal Dynamics. And when yeah. he said that, I was like, in my head, I was like, is that CD? And mm-hmm. then the answer is yes. If yeah. you were wondering, dear yeah. listener, yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> your suspicions have been confirmed. Well, and Bruce <laughs> and Evan and Amy, there's a story there about how so many folks who work together at Naughty Dog met at Crystal Dynamics. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was incredible. 1995, coming to... Um, you know, the unofficial capital of Silicon Valley. Um, I very quickly moved in with friends in San Francisco and it was just an extraordinarily exciting time. And the fact is that those canceled games were not wasted because it was the skills I earned there making platform games um, that were action games, that were trying to do interesting things with the combinatorics of action game mechanics and my interest in narrative that really led to uh, um, getting hired on at Crystal yeah. to work on games like the Gex series, Pandemonium, and latterly the Soul Reaver games. Oh right, yeah, 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 um, yeah. I mean, I have a like, I have a certain kind of um, like romanticism or or something with just thinking about working on games at that time because mm-hmm. I, you know, I was I was still you know in in school. I was a I was a uh, whatever uh, adolescent mm-hmm. at, that, yeah. at that so like yeah. I have this connection only from the outside of having mm-hmm. played you know Soul Reaver and having played you know like Super Nintendo games and Genesis games but like only as someone who saw the end product and it seems like you know there's something that's very kind of attractive about even just thinking about working in games when the technology was so much less developed when there was right. like it was just a different state of things mm-hmm. and just thinking about you know being being just seeing those things be made and with i think part of it is thinking of the community of people who are making the things as being almost a little bit like just more rarefied you know like it like yeah. it wasn't as 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 big of an industry uh-huh. it wasn't i think as visible of an industry and just being in that space like making these things and just being one of these people like we're the only people that even know that that this stuff is happening, you know, it seems really fascinating. And um, and there were upsides and downsides to that, right? Yeah. I think all of us who were doing it and who were really into it were tremendously excited, kind of jumping out of bed every day to get to work. Yeah. At the same time, I learned early on that um, uh, even as the technology got better, it wasn't going to be like we were just going to be able to show up to work, dream our wildest dreams, press a button, and make them happen. <laughs> right. Uh, in the transition from uh, uh, you know working on uh, cartridge based console games to CD games there was a kind of uh, a shocking realization that there was never going to be enough of anything that you wanted yeah. computational power storage space right I rem- I'm pretty sure I have a memory if it's not a false recovered memory of getting to close to the end of making gex and somebody going oh uh, the disk is full 
what are we going to cut? <laughs> what are we going to compress? Uh, <laughs> and that happened to us again and again and again, right up yeah. to the Uncharted games. Where right. we're like, oh, the Blu-ray disc is full. <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> and so I imagine it will always go, you know. I've right. got this incredible souped-up VR rig PC on my right. desk, and I'm always watching that frame rate readout, you know. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the, the work will always expand yeah. to, to, to fill, fill the available, to, to overflow the available space. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and there was, in those early times, this tremendous feeling at once of having this incredible privilege, being in this incredibly lucky position to be able to do what we were going to do, and at the same time, having this kind of uh, feeling of like, hey kids, let's do the show right here in the bar. Right, because yeah. we were. There's this great Ira, Ira Glass quote about um, the gap in between your good taste in the art forms that you love and your own level of craft, yeah. and how frustrating it can be when you are a fan of the greatest cultural artifacts that human beings have ever made, and then you've got your little thing down here that you've made, and you look at it. And you think objectively and you judge it as not very good yeah and he says that this is a challenge that all creative people face yeah and that uh, it can be tremendously dispiriting but the only way to get through it is to keep showing up keep making work keep putting your work out there yeah um, and so I, I think that we often felt that compared to the great cinematic storytellers we were just trying to we were like treading water reading um, uh, screenwriting books and cinematography books and trying to put that together with what we knew about game design trying to gosh invent the language of game design as we went along right because here in the late 90s early 2000s GDC is only really just starting to gather momentum we we haven't for much of that time we haven't even really got to Doug Church's um, uh, formal abstract design tools paper that kind right. of paved the way for everything that came thereafter mechanics dynamics aesthetics and all of the great classic yeah. GDC talks that we yeah. now see as foundational that we give to young game designers to say look here is the practice that was craft. some of the first stuff I mean the the Doug Church and uh, Robin Hunicky was involved in in, uh, in, in the MDA framework paper, I think, oh yeah, yeah. Well. Robin Hunnicky is one of the co-authors of the MDA. Yeah, framework. so like those those documents um, were really eye-opening for me and really foundational for me of just like understanding that that there are formal tools and ways to think about how your design decisions have a concrete impact on what the meaning of the thing is. Right. Yeah, so like yeah, getting to that place. And kind of working before you even had like a a, a, fr a framework for yeah. like like what what how do we think about the decisions we're making you yeah. know um, yeah, yeah. well and also I imagine you know you're in the mid to late nineties you're going from two D to three D and you're going mm -hmm. from cartridge to to CD ROM mm -hmm. you know like mm -hmm. you're not just trying to do a good job at stuff that's established you're just like what does it mean to to make a game that is in three dimensions, period. Yeah, <laughs> you <right>. know? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And trying to um, uh, glean as much knowledge from the things that were appearing that we really liked. Right. Like, I think it's hard to underestimate the impact of Mario 64. Right. That game kind of wrote the book in many ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In ways that we're still puzzling out, you know. Yeah, I think so. Um, so yeah, what uh, you know, what, what what was it like? What was it? What What do you remember from? You know your early days being, you know, away from your home country, mm -hmm. working with a with a new team on on this you know 
on this stuff that is sort of like a world away from what you were working on before and, and everything? Well, I mean, it was really exciting uh, and energizing. Um, uh, living in San Francisco at that time was really great. I was quite fortunate because I had loads of great friends at work. And because of these travels in the States in the very early 90s, I had friends who weren't associated with work. Yeah. So we were going out to concerts a lot. I saw um, both the Chemical Brothers uh, uh, and uh, Underworld uh, play tiny little gigs huh. of like a couple of hundred people in yeah, San Francisco yeah. in the in the late 90s. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, uh, yeah, the, all of the movies that were coming out in that time, it was just this incredibly rich mix. Yeah. At the same time, it was often very stressful uh, because like, you know, everyone um, who uh, has worked trying to make excellent work in a context of perhaps limited resources right. and trying and without a robust set of production methodologies to help you through to help you scope your project uh, so that you can get everything done yeah. uh, on time and in a healthy way yeah you know there sure. is a lot of late nights and weekends yeah. a lot of crunch yeah yeah and that, you know like one of the big differences one of the things that I appreciate about being able to run my own studio versus working in AAA is and, and I think this is like probably changing at some AAA studios sometimes but um, you know, I remember when I worked on, on, on Bioshock 2 or on Infinite, like, if you wanted to do work, you had to go into the office. Because they didn't have you yeah. set up to work remotely. Like, yeah. between security, mm -hmm. you know, like, project security and just, like, yeah. earlier than that time, mm -hmm. you know, broadband not being as, you know, all the different things. You know, like, home computers not being what you could develop a game on, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, and yeah. so now being able to say, like... Everybody at Fulbright is set up to either work at the office or from home. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so if you have a late night, it can be in your own house. Yes, <laughs> you know, right. like if you have to get some stuff done, you don't have to be like, well, I guess I'm taking a shower at the office and sleeping on the couch. And then, right. you know, like, yeah, because like I think that there is kind of like there can be a romanticism to some of those periods where like, oh, we were all in it together and we were yeah. there, you know, round the clock. And uh -huh. but on the other hand, like you said, it's not healthy. Certainly not in the long term. Like maybe no. doing that once as like a cool, crazy thing where we've got this out the door is like a neat experience to have had. But like having that be like four projects in a row is you're just going to die. So you're in grave danger, Steve, of triggering my anti-crunch rant <laughs> stroke spiel stroke lecture. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's something you want to talk no, about. No, I mean, I like my outlook on on crunch is that that... The definition of crunch is doing more hours than are productive for a sustained period of time. Exactly. Because, you know, if you are like, we have this milestone, mm -hmm. it's three weeks from now, mm -hmm. we know we've got four weeks of work to do in those three weeks, mm -hmm. let's, let's see what we can get done. Like, there's yeah. going to be early mornings and late nights and, mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff for a little while, mm -hmm. and then you get back to normal. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, projects that, that I've, you know, been involved with or being close to where it's like no we've got mandatory you know 10 hour days for six months you know to, right. to get this done yeah. like that's a very different thing you know and i think you've hit the nail on the head that's my definition of crunch when uh, hard work is unsustainable yeah you can't keep it up over time let me be very clear from the start i am very very pro hard work right that was something that i really have always loved about uh, this life that I've been able to lead, you know, I worked hard in high school, um, 
and uh, and I find great enjoyment in hard work. I believe that excellence comes from hard work, uh, and uh, um, and I believe there's a lot of personal reward to be had in that as well. Um, it's not for everyone. I wouldn't want yeah. to say that everyone should like work to uh, somewhere at the limits of how hard they can work. Yeah. But it's something that uh, that I really like. And value. I feel like you're a very high energy person in general, just from knowing you. And I am quite. You know, I think yeah, I'm, it's in my makeup, whatever. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Um, but I think that uh, um, it has to be sustainable. Yeah. Um, uh, aside from the important issues of exploitation, which I think uh, can be related to crunch, when yeah. you sign up to do a job um, for a certain amount of money with the expectation of a certain working a certain number of hours a week, and then you discover that those hours are increased by 50 to 100 percent, and suddenly yeah. your pay decreases by a third to a half when you figure it out on a hourly hour yeah, rate, yeah. I think that that, that is wrong. Um, but something that when we started having conversations about crunch in the industry that really spoke to me strongly was that um, um, uh, the wastage in the industry, in terms of people leaving the industry yeah. uh, because of unsustainable crunch, because yeah. of getting burned out. Yeah. And when somebody leaves the industry, they take all of the accumulated knowledge with them, right. all of the folk wisdom about how to do what we do well, yeah. uh, whether in practical terms of the, this or those skills, or whether in terms of like craft, how to tell good stories interactively. Yeah. Um, yeah. That goes. And then that slows the maturation of the form, right? Yeah, of, the art, sure. of the art form. For sure. Uh, so um, anyway, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I'm a big believer that you don't have to crunch. Um, I think that people who run teams, uh, it's incumbent on them to adopt production methodologies like Agile right. uh, that um, uh, minimize crunch, that mean that we're not biting off more than we can chew. Well, I think it's also important to um, have the 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 knowledge or the perspective to um, work against the the intuitive assumption that just like the more hours everybody's doing the more they're getting done oh yeah because there have been like you know army productivity studies from like the 40s or 50s yeah. that have you know said have done the studies outright that say past a certain point the more hours you do the less you get done yeah, yeah and it, it is sort of that like six weeks or something mm -hmm. you know you can you can really do that that sustained sprint and then it yeah. just starts falling and falling until very quickly you're doing less than you would be able to especially exactly. if you don't have a break after the yeah. the the um this the like focused yeah work. and so like even if it doesn't you know even if it's like well you know we have all this to get done so we got to make everybody work as many hours as possible i think it's it's just kind of ignorant. It's to, inefficient. To, to, it just does not work. understand that actually you're harming the project <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. more than if you just said, "We know how much we get. To, we need to get done. Everybody's going to be doing their forty hours, right? Unless there's like a clear reason to do more this week, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and have the the faith kind yes. of that that's actually going to be as or more productive and yeah. healthier as opposed to like, well, but if we're not all doing 80-hour weeks, how's this ever going to get done? You right, know? exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's very important to think about um, uh, what a studio is going to do next right. and what a studio is going to do in two projects' time so that we can be building towards these. I mean, there's long since been this received wisdom in video game development that the second version of a game is better than the first. 
yeah the reason being that we make the first game and we start to figure out what this game is all about and how it works well right and by uh, you know number two we're really ready to fly right uh, there is a obviously that works for like a, a particular game series but I think yeah. it also works across the um, uh, the kind of lifetime arc of uh, communities of development whether yeah. that's a company or a particular team inside of a company yeah uh, my friend Gary Penn who's a, a British game developer he was one of the game journalists actually that I grew up reading in oh, the late cool. 80s it was a kind of <laughs> awesome renaissance of uh, game writing in the late 80s that had a lot more kind of flair and style that felt more like music writing yeah. that I was yeah, reading at right. the time. And Gary says that um, uh, like every kind of creative uh, communities, game teams have a repertoire. Yeah. They have a certain um, collection of things that they know how to do well. Right. And I always thought that this was very interesting in the history of Naughty Dog, you know, that they made that cluster of early games like Keith the Thief. Uh, and the fighting game that they made early on. And then they made Crash Bandicoot, right? Yeah. And it's this awesome, perfectly polished, wonderful, and in its own way, storytelling uh, um, uh, kind of take on um, 80s arcade action games right. for the 90s with all of these new graphical flourishes and kind of narrative uh, yeah. flourishes. Yeah. All the, the things like... Um, uh, I, th I can't remember who told me this, but uh, um, the reason that Crash runs towards the camera in those kind of chased by the giant boulder sequences is both for gameplay, so that you can see the imminent threat of the boulder, right. um, but in large part so that you can see the expression on his face <laughs> sure. right, and resonate with him emotionally and the horror and panic of being chased down by this thing. That's so funny, yeah. And then the Jack and Daxter games are kind of an evolution of, of, uh, of everything that they learned to do in Crash. Crash, right? right, but kind of writ large, yeah. opened up to have uh, greater degrees of freedom in the traversal, yeah. more styles of uh, um, you know combat mechanic, more mission styles, and obviously a lot more narrative, yeah. and a huge amount more narrative. The Jack series is a full-blown narrative yeah. game series, story game. And yeah. then there's the same kind of kind of uh, as above, so below evolution from Jack and Dexter to Uncharted, I right? Think, yeah, where it's fundamentally in some ways the same game template yeah. but expanded uh, uh, along all of these sort of orthogonal dimensional axes yeah. of narrative and gameplay. Yeah. Well, how long were you at Crystal Dynamics before you before you moved down here to work at Naughty Dog? I was uh, six months shy of a decade at Crystal Dynamics. Wow, I didn't realize it was that long. Which was really unusual, I think. You know, most so like of 1995 my... to 2004? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Huh. exactly. Wow, all right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was unusual. I think most people change jobs every kind of two or three years. And right. I think it speaks to what a great uh, place Crystal uh, was and is to work yeah. uh, you know I got to work on a lot of different styles of game um, it was 99 when um, I was in a bit of a slump in my personal life uh, I uh, had great ambitions of course for the kind of kind of games that I wanted to make yeah. and I had met uh, and become friends with Amy Hennig as soon as she joined uh, Crystal yeah. very very shortly after me we'd even done a little bit of work uh, as like stunt designers going into other teams uh, okay. uh, together yeah. uh, and Be, being kind of loaned out to, to help with, with different projects like this or that yeah. project and, uh, um, and uh, Amy invited me onto the project she was working on, which was uh, the project that would become the first Soul Reaver game. Right, and I knew that because she was the she was the creative lead or the she was the, the 
the director, director yeah, of director the whole thing. series. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, as well as the head writer, yeah, uh, similar to the role that she had on the uh, Uncharted games. Yeah. And I knew Amy as someone who um, uh, loved uh, games and storytelling in the same kind of way I did. We shared a lot of the same kind of tastes as well in movies and novels and graphic novels and music. So yeah, uh, I've, yeah we had a really good time uh, working on the Soul Reaver series and learned a huge amount. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, you went from... You worked on the 2D Gex games? The I did, first yeah. Gex? Just okay. a tiny bit of work on the okay. very tail end of the 2D Gex game. The tail end. Uh, <laughs> you keep doing I it, I keep them coming. <laughs> I am a one-person subliminal pun machine, apparently. Uh, so, uh, so you went from 2D Gex to 3D Gex. No, actually, with Pandemonium in between, which is okay. this interesting game. Yeah, I think that's one football. of the much less lesser-known... Uh, titles that you've worked on. Although it has a huge cult following. Okay. I'm always meeting people who love the Pandemonium games. Well, lay it out. What, like, I, I, you, you were telling me a little bit about it earlier, but like, what was the hook or how did it, how did it work? Because it sounded really interesting. I don't know if yeah. I really even knew anything about it until you were telling me about it. So Pandemonium was, as far as I'm aware, the first uh, character action game to be set in a manifold. And a manifold is a two-dimensional surface that is kind of bent around in 3D space. So you can imagine a ribbon of paper yeah. standing on its end, but it kind of curves and ripples back and forth. And, and it can loom back kind of behind it itself and all that. Yeah, okay. And so the folks at Toys for Bob, who was the leg- who who are the legendary studio, who all the way uh, back in the day made games like Archon and Star Control too. Yeah. Um, uh, were working on and, this. And now they make Skylanders. And now they make Skylanders. Games, yeah, yeah. And they they basically created what would become amoebas and, uh, and the whole like that whole crazy yeah yeah trend. yeah no the the but, toys to life yeah, uh, thing yeah. they pioneered I yeah. mean they've just done so much incredibly innovative creative work yeah um, and um, Paul Ritchie who's one of the company founders was one of my key mentors at yeah. this time I think he. Um, uh, uh, Blew me, he, he totally blew my mind one day by saying, I recognize that you're interested in game design as design with a capital D, which was not something that I think I had even realized before, like I was saying before, yeah, connecting yeah. out to these other design disciplines. Yeah. And so he kind of nurtured me in that sense, drew that out of me. That's awesome. Uh, I think, you know, I'm kind of quite preoccupied with the idea of mentors and mentorship maybe it's because I'm a professor now sure um, but certainly I know the influence that other people have had on my own life and have made uh, have helped me be able to do things that I don't think I could have otherwise done for sure uh, on yeah. my own yeah but um, so the uh, uh, the game were used a spline to define the manifold and that meant that you could be running along to the left and the, the whole the, the, the characters and the enemies in the game would suddenly like be able to turn a corner yeah. or the character could run down a spiral staircase and uh, even though the, that meant that the uh, gameplay was still really 2d gameplay it allowed us to begin to do cinematic things yeah. Yeah. the camera was on its own spline yeah. corresponding to a point on the spline where the character was and yeah. we could do these great kind of swoops and huh. crane shots and interesting camera moves yeah. that we would then on the first 3D Gex game which was what I uh, went on to straight after uh, we would be begin to do um, obviously the player controls the camera a lot in a game like Gex yeah. but also there are invisible trigger volumes that will interpolate the camera slowly over time so it doesn't feel like we've grabbed the 
the camera off the player to move it subtly to another spot, okay. either for cinematic effect or for uh, to support some new mode of gameplay. Yeah, the the pandemonium paradigm, like in my head, almost feels like it relates most closely to like like a game like the like the first God of War. Sort of, you know, we were sort of like mm-hmm. side scrolling, but with a camera that's like on a spline and moving in and out, and, and the you know it doesn't have to actually be a it's a three D environment with a side scrolling kind of you know structure to it. And I think there's kind of a sub sub genre there of um, games that do interesting weird things with the camera in a real time action context. Yeah. You know, we could see Alone in the Dark, which begat Resident Evil right. uh, in that way. Yeah. I think the Devil May Cry games also did lots of really interesting stuff yeah with, uh, camera right and, and God of War was clearly influenced by Devil May Cry and uh, yeah yeah and then the Uncharted games would go on to do a lot uh, I would sometimes wonder whether people realize just how much clever weird camera work is happening in Uncharted I think probably not I mean when it's not in a cutscene and it's completely authored I think so mm-hmm. much of that is subtle in a way that you know makes it um, Unspoken to the player, like yeah. it, it, it and that's certainly the goal. Conscious of it, yeah. yeah but if but you it, notice it, it's something's gone wrong, right? Because then probably it is, like you say, where you feel like, well, now they, I'm not even, I'm not even controlling the camera anymore. Like I feel like I'm yeah. being, you know, jarred by like, right. can I even control what I'm looking at? You know, but when it's those, oh, we're just going to adjust the distance a little bit, and kind yeah. of like encourage you to maybe, yeah. you know, more look this way, or through, like the camera sensitivity or whatever, yeah, to change the relationship between Drake and the space yeah. to make him seem kind of dwarfed by the space yeah. or what have you I, this is this effect. is almost totally unrelated but like I'm a big fan of Resident Evil 4 and Resident mm-hmm. Evil 4 has mm-hmm. one of the most just like baked mechanical it's just like on a broomstick you know stuck to Leon's shoulder generally yeah it's like but um, there's a lot of really subtle stuff where in different environments it is lower or it is yeah. higher or it is closer in when you're in a tighter yeah. environment. Right. And the, the place where it's the most obvious because you can directly affect it is when you're um, moving with uh, Ashley, you can tell her to wait and and then you are going solo and then you can oh, call to, to have yeah, her follow yeah. you again. Mm-hmm. And when you press that button, when she starts following you, the camera pulls back four feet. And then yep. when you say, wait here, it just goes in. Right. And it's relating to, you know, what you're controlling, which is either mm-hmm. a pair of people or... Is, uh, but it, it could have just been always at the further, you yeah, know, like yeah, the further yeah, away yeah. one. And they're like, hey, now Ashley can show up whenever. But they thought about, like, well, when it's just you, you should have a little bit more tightness to just that person then when you're back you want to be able to see Ashley and make you know like that those sorts of subtle things are really interesting I think they're hugely interesting yeah I mean that you know cinematography is this kind of invisible craft in filmmaking that unless you have uh, unless you're super super observant or you have studied filmmaking is almost completely invisible to you you yeah. know the way that each shot is composed um, the, the arrangement of the elements in the scene yeah. um, the movement of the camera as well uh, all of these are things which are not just shaping the way that you're receiving information from the story but are also impacting you emotionally and so it goes with video games right I think it must be something that when you are a filmmaker um, whether you're you know a cinematographer or a director or someone doing storyboards or, or whatever um, you know I know that when I was working on Bioshock 2 was the first time that I thought consciously about how to see 
the player experience differently. And I was taught this by um, Zach McClendon, who I think mm. you worked with at Crystal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. not um, directly, but uh, he was a buddy when I was at okay. Crystal. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, overlap, in, in any case. Um, and uh, he was he was the lead designer on Bioshock 2 and, and my lead on Minerva's Den. And so I was a level designer on, on Bioshock 2. And I just remember during that project, I think, you know, kind of through, you know, his describing a way to look at these things. Um, if I, so if I think of a movie scene, especially a movie scene with like a lot of edits, if I think of an action scene, mm -hmm. you know, um, we all, you know, if it's directed well, you can follow what happened and you can say what happened, but I couldn't go back and describe what each shot was no. and, and, and like what kind of camera angle it was and exactly mm -hmm. what I saw in what order. Mm -hmm. But as a filmmaker, you have to think like, you're going to see a close-up of this, and then it's going to follow their hand as it swings around and points at this, and then we're going to show you what they're pointing. And you know, like, and and you you kind of have to be seeing it in ultra slow mo in in the creation phase to say uh -huh. like you're going to see this, then this, then this, and this, and that's how you're going to know what happened. And I think with video games, there was a similar thing where you know I was responsible on on Bioshock Two for working on um, the first level where there's a lot of you know core game tutorial stuff, and. So I did a lot of, you know, re uh, I replayed the original Bioshock as, you know, a, a place to, to draw examples from. But mm -hmm. also in thinking on what I was working on, I just remember having that turning point of being like, oh, okay. So you have to think, you see this, and then you see this, and then when you pick this up, you get this message from the game, and then you see this, and right. that's how you know you're supposed to do this with that thing you picked up, and how you right. remember what kind of situation you use it in later yeah. and you know and uh -huh. and and I think it's I think it's that kind of thing where you're like okay I'm actually seeing this from the inside now right. and can act intentionally yeah. within that in a way that I don't think you start out oh, thinking no. about no in fact I remember being even kind of uh, slightly resistant at one point in my career to understanding better how cinema works because I kind of didn't I had the idea that it might spoil movies for me <laughs> right yeah. um, but it was really Amy Hennig who nudged me towards getting books and reading them about filmmaking yeah uh, and I'm, I'm glad to say that it didn't destroy my appreciation right, of film. Right. if anything it uh, has deepened it and intensified it yeah and uh, all of those techniques are so ripe for being reworked into um, uh, in the service of, of gameplay yeah. and interactive storytelling. So I, you know, I've always been kind of frustrated. There's a certain kind of person who says, uh, "Yeah, well, if you want to make a movie, go make a movie." Right. Uh, to people who are interested in game and, and storytelling, it might, be, it might be John Wayne. A little bit. Uh, well, <laughs> how it is. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'll do my Bugs Bunny for you in a minute, oh, no. and then you'll be really sorry. <laughs> um, but um, because while, of course, I get the sentiment behind that, that uh, just coughing up um, the kind of the the uh, stylistic techniques of a of a different media form in a video game isn't necessarily the best way to go. Um, uh, but only by uh, understanding a craft and being able to deconstruct it 
can um, uh, we begin to put it back together for in the service of a, an emerging form like like games? Right. I've actually I'm having a great week as regards this. Um, so now I work uh, in the USC Games program at the University of Southern California here in Los Angeles, and the part of the program that I work in is situated in USC's School of Cinematic Arts, which is one of the best film schools in the world. Right. And I'm surrounded by all of these wonderful filmmakers, television makers, writers, um, a very cool uh, critical studies division as well, yeah. cinema and media studies. And this week I am teaching a workshop for a group of game developers um, uh, uh, from a big company in China called oh. Tencent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's been a wonderful experience right down the line. Uh, and this week we had a trilogy of lectures um, by my friend Professor Bruce Block. Do you know Bruce's work? I don't think so. So I think he's getting better and better known in the game industry. Okay. Um, more than 10 years ago now, Bruce wrote a book called The Visual Story. Okay. Um, which somebody, I think probably Bruce Straley, discovered and brought into work at Naughty Dog. Uh, and we all kind of fell upon this book. The book is an extraordinarily clear and lucid dissection of the way that the composition of the image and the pattern of cutting between different images and indeed camera moves within a single cut uh, can either work with the storytelling or against it. Yeah. And um, uh, so we uh, used this book to improve our own understanding of what happens in those moments that you were describing, you yeah. know, from shot yeah. to shot to shot in a, in a movie, so that we could then um, take all of those techniques and use them in uh, in, a, in a video game of the kind that we were making. Yeah. So it's been really great sitting in Bruce's lectures this week. That's and cool. Hearing him convey these techniques to uh, uh, yeah. to the wonderful folks in the workshop. Yeah. And I highly recommend this book really to everyone. It really doesn't matter what kind of game you're working on—a 3D character action game, uh, a 2D adventure game. Bruce's theories about the way that um, within an image, within a single image, without any cutting um, horizontal lines in an image are very stable mm. and kind of low energy low excitement vertical lines are also quite stable uh, and uh, but a little bit higher energy um, diagonals are dynamic and yeah. kind of active and energizing and of higher intensity and so depending on what you're trying to do in the scene you want to compose your image if it's a quiet serene moment of rest you might want lots of horizontal lines in the composition okay uh, huh. if it's something that is a little more active like a, a call to adventure maybe you'd want lots of vertical lines like you could set something in a, in a forest of, of tall um, pine trees or something mm -hmm. um, in the uh, uh, Soul Reaver games. We were very inspired by German Expressionist cinema. Sure, um, yeah, that Amy, makes sense. Amy Hennig has a, a degree uh, in filmmaking, a okay. master's degree in filmmaking, yeah. and like all film students, she studied the German Expressionists, right. who were breaking away from the fixed vertical and horizontal rigidity of the proscenium arch and of movie sets that look like domestic interiors, and were canting those angles, you know, yeah. starting to Having create very, crazy angles. Yeah, very uh, dramatic kind of impressionistic shadows that are projected, you right. know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and this is another Bruce Block thing, like you, you create these patterns of lines by contrast of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, high brightness and low brightness right. in, the, in the shapes, in the, in the composition. Yeah. And so in the 
when you go into um, uh, the parallel dimension uh, that you go into in the Soul River games, the kind of the the, the underworld, um, the landscape which looks naturalistic and kind of pastoral and you know uh, medieval castles and, and gothic buildings and things, everything kind of gets stretched and deformed and all the angles become crazy. Yeah. And, uh, you know that uh, uh, raises the sort of the dramatic tension uh, uh, in there. Yeah. Uh, in those scenes and even when you ask the question well uh, in a video game we don't necessarily know where the camera is looking right uh, this is of course uh, an issue that is very much in play now that we're making experiences for virtual reality sure you know yeah. where the, the the audience member the player could look anywhere at any time you can still compose the scene in yeah. this regard uh, depending on what you populate it with what you build out yeah well, it's, a, it's a huge aspect of of designing for first-person games yeah. that, that you don't take player control away for is just like right. how do how do you how do you communicate you know in unspoken ways where the player should probably look right. and, and and react to that sometimes like yeah. wait until they're looking at something to yeah. trigger yeah. a thing or whatever yeah. but you know kind of making that not be an accident making it be like oh I feel like I should look over here oh a thing happened you, you know intentionally um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean it's something that um, I think that's something that's valuable about filmmaking and visual storytelling um, as it relates to games like you know even if a game is not you know a movie at all um, movies are showing a sequence of images to a viewer and having them understand what that means yeah. um, mm -hmm. and and that's very true in game design as well where where you are kind of saying like you know especially in something that's that's either tutorial or environmental storytelling where yeah. you want to say like okay how do I make the player understand what I need them to understand mm -hmm. through what they're seeing in the world or what happens in the world or what they do yeah. and what the reaction to that thing is there's this funny um, there, you know I, I, people have probably seen for instance some of those like or maybe some of those like comparison like YouTube videos of like Michael Bay fight scenes versus like Jackie Chan fight scenes uh -huh. where you know Jackie Chan fight scenes are like every shot is communicating a sequence of events that you can intuitively see exactly how this whole fight happened and you know what the reaction to the punch was and why you know all that stuff whereas uh -huh. you know there's some filmmaking that's just very noisy you know, like I guess a bunch of shit's happening you right, know? Yeah, yeah, um, and, yeah. and I, I have a real appreciation for that in well-made like Hollywood filmmaking like there's, mm -hmm. a, there's this example that I use that's from Terminator 2 mm -hmm. which is when they're in the um, they're doing the the chase through the the LA River uh, you know the dry concrete um, you know canal in LA where it's the um, it's the the like semi-trailer truck chasing the motorcycle uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they're doing that whole chase and then the truck crashes and uh, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the kid get off the motorcycle and they look back to like see if, you know, he's really dead or whatever. And in the broadest sense, what happens is the truck crashes, comes to a stop, they stop and get off and look back, and then the truck explodes. Mm -hmm. Which, if that was all that the movie showed, mm -hmm. that would be totally random and be like a laugh line. Uh -huh. You know, it's uh -huh. like what, but, yeah. the, but what you actually see in the movie, the truck crashes, they stop the bike, they turn around and look, and then there's an insert shot of the fuel tank being damaged and oh. it pouring out. And then there's another insert shot of a loose wire that's sparking, swing right. down and touch the, the, yes. the gas. And then it goes back to the wide shot and the thing explodes. Right. And then you're like, oh, I understand why that happened. It makes sense. I get it. 
it's not just ridiculous. Yeah. It, there's a reason for it. And it's because you showed me these important things in this order and it made me have the reaction that was intended, not the one that, that you might have had if it was a sloppier or less considered sequence of images that you were being presented with. So I think you're really uh, hitting on something important here. I think when we first uh, approach uh, creation in a form which we have appreciated but we haven't yet worked in ourselves, we often um, had struggle to get our heads around uh, just how much of our job it is as designers, as everyone who participates in the creation of something, to communicate um, clearly um, uh, sequences of causation, right. of exactly. cause and effect, exactly. like you were just describing. Whether those are mechanical in the way that you described, kind of, you know, crash truck, leaking fuel, sparking electrics, explosion, or um, uh, interior for right. human beings, yeah. like someone's dawning understanding that their partner is cheating on them. Right. Or someone's uh, uh, emotional struggle in like the 11th month of their grief or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Right? These patterns of cause and effect that are sometimes very hard to depict, that sometimes we have to depict through allegory or metaphor. Yeah. Uh, or by the complete design of everything in the scene. This was a wonderful part of being in uh, Bruce Block's workshop and hearing him talk about the way that kind of everything uh, supports the goal of the story, like right. the the shapes of the lines in the scene that I was just talking about, the colors, which can either be uh, uh, kind of warm and intimate or cold and distancing. Yeah. Um, the patterns of cutting, you know, that promote one kind of intensity or uh, another kind of calmness. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, um, the buttons that we press, the gestures that we make with our hands as we're controlling a, a character. Right. Um, whether a particular sequence of gameplay is coming off the back of another one like it or something quite different. Right. These, well, these kinds of uh, uh, contrasts and affinities uh, where uh, things are uh, really happening, uh, good things potentially are happening for our audience or bad things yeah. when, when we don't handle um, uh, the kind of the, the rhythms and structures underlying what we're making and then things fall flat yeah so so yeah so you clearly came from you know an interest in both the art and craft of film when you were you know working in, in games and that that seems like especially with where Naughty Dog ended going, ended up going. You know, after the after you started there, that that really you know makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was what was the first thing that you worked on at Naughty Dog? You you said that, that there was kind of a group of you in a way that that maybe gradually or kind of like mm -hmm. you know influenced each other to to migrate down there. You and and Amy Hennig and Evan Evan Wells Evan Wells. So yeah. when I turned up at uh, Crystal Dynamics, one of the first people I met. Uh, uh, on the design team was this uh, young man. I think he was probably wearing uh, like uh, athletics uh, uh, clothes <laughs> like at the a, time, like, a track suit like, or like track pants yeah. and maybe. Uh, 
um, uh, uh, yeah, some kind of sports shirt. Uh, and uh, he was furiously programming away. And uh, I, he was introduced to me as a designer. And he was working on a bunch of cool uh, systems uh, on the Gex uh, games. And he, uh, Gex, first Gex game. And he was an intern. Uh, okay. And this was Evan Wells, who was just finishing up his computer science degree, I believe, at Stanford. Okay. And was also on the gymnastics team. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know if he uh, if he still does it much, but one of Evan's party tricks uh, has always been handstands. Uh, <laughs> it wouldn't be long into any given rap party before someone was encouraging Evan to do a handstand in the middle of the room. Um, and Evan is this uh, brilliant guy. Of course, he was taken on as a game designer. Uh, he was soon the game director of Gex Enter the Gecko. Okay. And just one of those brilliant guys who's great at everything around uh, game creation and he's now the president of Naughty Dog yeah, and so yeah. I think he must have moved down to Naughty Dog maybe round about uh, 97 uh, uh, to work on the Crash Bandicoot games um, I think he was uh, a lead designer on Crash Team Racing okay. it was the uh, the Mario Kart style racing game that yeah, they made yeah uh, and um, uh, and then I had also worked on that same team Gex Enter the Gecko the 3D Gex game yeah. alongside Evan and Bruce Straley yeah, yeah. Uh, who did both art and design for that game. Bruce, uh, I think, moved down shortly after Evan uh, to work at Naughty Dog yeah. on the Jack games. I think, he, I think he said that he first worked on Crash Team Racing, I think. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, right really around that. Shortly, right? yeah. around about that same yeah. time. Uh, Stephen White, who was Evan's co-president for a long time, had uh, worked with us at Crystal as okay. well. Uh, and... Uh, uh, Amy and I stayed at Crystal Dynamics for a long time and then Amy moved at the beginning of 2004 and I moved about halfway through okay. that year. So um, was, was the first game that you really worked on directly at Naughty Dog, the first Uncharted, the like no, pro for no, the first Uncharted? Actually, no, okay. no, it was uh, Jack 3. So oh, okay. Amy actually directed uh, Jack 3 okay. uh, and I came on just towards the end to help uh, finish it up. Okay, uh, gotcha. And... Um, uh, uh, it was a really good experience. Um, uh, a bit like coming in at the very tail end of the first Gex game, coming in at the end of a Jack game helped me uh, take on a bunch of design tasks that would sort of allow me to get to know everyone on the team yeah. and to begin to earn their trust and respect. Um, and while um, you know some designers might have seen the uh, the jobs that I was given to do as kind of lowly, I really relished them because I was a huge fan of the Jack and Daxter series. Okay, yeah. Uh, and um, uh, to this day, I think it's one of the great storytelling game series. Cool. Uh, and it's so inventive and colourful and, and kind of out of left field. You know, this kind of American manga. Tech. Right. Yeah. It's got a lot of heart as well. Yeah. Series, and so I was uh, doing things like um, uh, laying out bonus missions, and I did some of the tutorial sequences okay. as well. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that these were really great places to um, up my game yeah. in terms of design craft. You know, well, I mean, the being having been someone who's been tasked with tutorial sequences, like, it's, I mean, 
it's a big responsibility, and it's kind of an yeah. honor. I mean, you're it like, you're, it's your it's job to honor. make sure that the player understands what the game is. Right, you know? right. And, and in in the modern age, where often that's just the beginning of the campaign, not like a separate, you know, like training missions thing. It's like it's, it it's should the be first a, minutes of the game, and you know? it should be a piece of valid entertainment in yeah. its own right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I really enjoyed uh, working on those things. Yeah, uh, right. And uh, they demand a, a high practice of craft. The bonus missions too. No one likes to play a, a kind of a, a bonus mission that is has been that fun, just feels, Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so I really uh, worked hard and had a really good time. Really enjoyed working on that game. Then I was the lead game designer on um, Jack X Combat Racing. Oh, okay. Um, okay, And cool. uh, uh, had a great time on that game. Uh, that was my first experience of creating uh, online multiplayer oh, gameplay. Oh, yeah. Um, and even though the uh, game was a combat racing game uh, and it had both um, track modes where you were racing and fighting at the same time yeah. uh, and, uh, and arena modes um, there was a good bit of story and oh, yeah. it actually had some elements of non-linear storytelling huh. uh, like branching story depending on what you did in the races or something modular storytelling huh. yeah, that's yeah, cool yeah. Uh, and uh, you know and, and a good number of minutes of uh, you know kind of nicely produced Naughty Dog standard cutscenes yeah um, so uh, uh, and uh, then after that I did uh, uh, a little bit of work on a, uh, a Jack and Daxter PSP game oh, yeah. that ended up not being developed by Naughty Dog. Right. Being developed by another studio. Um, that I uh, that was Neil Druckmann's first full time gig as right. a game designer. <laughs> spoke about that on Tone Control. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think I mentioned to him that, uh, and I mentioned to Bruce. I mentioned all the Naughty Dogs that yeah. Uh -huh. I, when I was a my first job in the industry was being a certification tester for PS2 and PSP right, games. Yes, and I was uh, a cert tester on the on the Daxter yes, PSP game, the like solo a, Daxter PSP. Great game. game, Ready at Dawn's game. Right, my friend yeah. Michael John did a bunch of uh, game design work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, MJ had worked on the Spyro series, so oh, okay. this is kind of nice confluence of yeah. of craft and of practice, you know, and shared yeah. wisdom. Of yeah, making games. So yeah, that's nice. And then um, you know there was this, this sort of internal change, at Naughty Dog. Uh, it was decided that um, uh, we uh, had to have all hands on deck uh, to work on Uncharted. Yeah, uh, and I mean, so what was the what we was the yeah what was the genesis of Uncharted? I mean, you know, because I talked to to Bruce about it, but I feel my the, my impression is that you and Amy were more like directly. I don't know. Involved I think with it like was where Uncharted it was came a from, or rich, I, rich mix okay. of influences and kind of impetus. Um, I mean, did it come from the? Did it come from the top? Like, what, it came, where, came from everywhere. Okay. I mean, right. you know, um, this is the wonderful thing about Naughty Dog as a studio is that it's very open, very egalitarian in terms of like where ideas can come from. Okay. Because um, I know that there's like there's a, there's a story that Ken Levine has told, like because mm -hmm. uh, he worked on on the first Thief game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and that that the, the the kind of starting point, as he told it, for that game was that just Paul Paul Neurath, the um, founder of of Looking Glass, uh, at some point was just like, we should do a game about like a thief. And then it's like, okay, well, what's that mean? What is the Looking Glass version of that? You know, and it like it, well, it came from there. And so I always wonder, was it like who like I mean, it, it didn't have to be a single person, but it seems like somewhere there was like we should do like a 
Indiana Jones kind of thing. But you, you know, know, you know what? Like, I have a sense that sometimes in creative communities, which doesn't mean a group of people who know each other, right? It can be just people across the world who like tabletop RPGs. Right. Sometimes there are creative ideas floating out there just kind of ready for someone to manifest them. Yeah. And I think Thief is a nice case in point because as I understood it, as someone interested in kind of class-based tabletop RPGs, Thief is kind of this lowly uh, uh, character class, right? right? It's kind of this outlier. The, the, the weirdos in the group of friends like to play a thief. Uh, people right. who like to do things kind of indirectly. Yeah. Uh, you know, nine out of ten people want to be the warrior. Right. Like the strong kind of central character. But yeah. this uh, uh, thief is, yeah, kind of an outlier, loner character. And so to take that character and make it central is an interesting creative proposition. Sure, yeah. And I would say so it goes with Uncharted. So uh, Naughty Dog uh, and Evan Wells have spoken a little more in recent years about the early days of the project. Um, uh, the initial codename of the project, as Neil said, on Tone Control was big. Uh, and it was going to be this next-gen project for PS3. It was going right. to mark a kind of leap forwards as Jack had been to uh, uh, Crash Bandicoot, yeah. so Uncharted would be to Jack. Uh, we're going to try a bunch of new stuff and get more ambitious than the, the, the already ambitious studio had ever been before. Yeah. New tools, uh, um, obviously, like more processing power and memory. Uh, and um, but there was some contention for a long time about what kind of narrative world this was going to be. For a while there, um, uh, I, you know, it, it could have been in a completely different genre. Um, and we uh, tried out a lot of different things, lots of different kind of story treatments and gameplay treatments were written up, lots of different kinds of concept art was made, but eventually uh, it kind of circled uh, in increasingly smaller circles this idea of pulp fiction. Yeah. You know, of kind of classic adventure fiction. Right, like serial fiction, like early century. I mean, the stuff that inspired Indiana Jones. Exactly, so, yeah. the 1930s yeah. B-feature serials. Yeah. And there was a kind of a spate of uh, adventure movies in the 30s and 40s uh, as well. Yeah. But going all the way back to Robinson Crusoe and Treasure Island. Sure, right? yeah. Uh, and the idea was that maybe there could be a kind of contemporary version of this classic genre. Where you could kind of breathe new life into... Uh, um, uh, this kind of perhaps you might see, see as a, a kind of jaded older uh, uh, set of conventions yeah. well and like contemporary contemporary like 2007 contemporary not, yeah. you know, not like not like you know fighting Nazis contemporary but, mm -hmm. but actual present day but, yeah. but, but very present yeah. day yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and certainly Amy uh, is a big fan of Flash Gordon and Doc Savage yeah. which isn't very well known but Doc Savage was and by the way uh, just, just to be clear in 2007 fighting Nazis was not contemporary <laughs> I realize that we're talking about this in 2017 yeah uh, yeah, <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> took me a moment there but yes that's a, a sorry state of affairs that we're at in 2017. But in, um, in 2004, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, when we're conceiving of yeah, uh, but, but you but you were, you know, I, I have to imagine that along with the stuff that inspired Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones itself was also an influence and all that stuff. Oh, but, but saying like, 
but that character now, what does that mean? Right. Uh, right. Yeah. And, but also, you know, other kind of um, genre elements that are, are orthogonal to that, like Die Hard, you know, right. uh, where you've got like kind of uh, cutting edge action, but right. tempered by this uh, wit. Right. Uh, and I think that actually uh, that's one of the often overlooked uh, secrets to uh, Uncharted's success um, is the amount of screwball comedy right. that's in Uncharted's yeah. DNA. Yeah. I don't know that uh, too many contemporary audiences would know the genre of screwball comedy. Like but Preston Sturgis. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And the, uh, um, uh, these uh, comedies with uh, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy and Cary Grant right. from like the 30s and the 40s. Yeah. Often people of great privilege going on kind of wacky adventures, but often featuring, um, uh, they were quite uh, feminist, progressive films, I think. You know, yeah. They would feature women in very active roles, mm -hmm. professional women, um, giving as, as good as they got from right. the, the men around them. Yeah, things um, like um, His Girl Friday. And Bringing and a Baby, I think. Of the bringing two, a Baby uh, is... Yeah. Bringing a baby is about Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant having a leopard as Adopting a Adopting a leopard. That's um, a, kind of a B-plot, but it's the thing that that movie is right. mainly known for. But also, um, Sullivan's Travels is fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's a screwball comedy road movie with Veronica Lake. Right, and right, right. It's, yeah, it, she, she's sort of like the rogue, roguish kind of like character and the, mm -hmm. the guy is sort of the bumbling, like, yeah, privileged, like guy mm -hmm. out of his element. And that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a great movie and a really big influence on the Coen brothers. Um, right. And so, there's also a nice strand seeking. in that film that he is, uh, you know, he's racked uh, with anxiety about making an issue movie, like making a serious movie that seriously has something to say, yeah. which I think uh, summarizes uh, something that I've always appreciated about Amy Hennig's creative practice is uh, that that she 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 doesn't get too caught up in that realm well like, though i think the trans i think amy's writing is really uh, uh transcendent right is full of i, I, I mean, guess but she I guess doesn't approach it in an on the nose way right, right? what i should mean to say is that it's not that her work isn't limited by that for right exactly right. Yeah, 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 yeah 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 and it's not for nothing that there is a character in the uncharted universe called sullivan right <laughs> good point <laughs> um so okay, so so you you know so it sounds like you as a group as as the studio, you were finding your way to, to what that that meant and and what that was. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, do you remember what what elements of, the game or the idea, kind of came together first and led the rest of the thing? Was it like we know who Nathan Drake is and the rest of the mm -hmm. experience is hung on that or I don't know. Like what was it? I don't know. It's very, it's, it seems like a very interesting place for someone to be to be like in the conceptual stages of something that will yeah. end up being a major franchise. Oh, you know? absolutely. And, and there and, aren't that many people that are kind of in the room for when it's like, so what is Uncharted? What is I don't, Bioshock? Yeah. What is you know, Mass Effect? Or, you know, whatever, right? It, and it's one of my favorite parts of my entire career, having been able to be in the room. Because even though Neil and I were working on Jack and Daxter PSP, we were in very many of those meetings. Yeah, and there yeah. were often less than a dozen, maybe only half a dozen people in the room. Yeah. And so I think that it actually took a little longer to get to the exact nature of the character than it did to frame up the world. And I think the idea was always that um, the world would be one of adventure and curiosity and wonder. Yeah. It's something I really like about the series. I really appreciate about all of the collaborators who led to its creation. It's this kind of joy of life. 
uh, it's kind of appreciation of the day-to-day, -day, right? Yeah. Um, and I like that, even though I would say Uncharted is a genre game, it's not genre in the sense of science fiction or fantasy. Uh, right. Uh, strictly, um, yeah, and so yeah, it kind of there's some supernatural creatures and stuff. No, uh, arguably, uh, okay. we might take issue. With okay, that. okay. I, would, uh, <laughs> I think everyone has their own Uncharted interpretation. I wonder if Uncharted is a science fiction game, okay, rather than a supernatural game. But uh, we can maybe talk about okay. that later <laughs> or another time. Um, but you know, it's this kind of. Uh, I think that partly the Uncharted games are a poetic tribute to the wonder of the natural world, right? These beautiful organic environments, forests and jungles and deserts and beaches, you know, it's really a, a reflection that maybe sometimes we look past in games of this world around us that's just so marvelous, you know. Yeah. Uh, and well, I think it's something that really made the, the, the game stand, like the first game stand out when it first came out. Like I think that there was, I, I, it was either on Uncharted 1 or 2 that you guys made a direct like joke about this with one of the uh, like camera filters that you could put on with like next gen graphics oh, mode that turned uh -huh. it all brown. <laughs> um, but like, but you know, Uncharted was coming out in a time where I think there was a lot of that feeling of like all these games are so serious and dark and brown and like yeah. you know, uh, you know, just right. sort of like and and people wanted blue skies and and green leaves, and, you know, and and color, colorfulness, both yep. literally in the palette, yep. uh, you know, brightness of color, saturation diverse color palettes but also in the emotional tone of the thing that's yeah. where the screwball comedy comes in right right to temper the kind of the tough guy actioneering yeah uh, which I think ultimately makes all of the characters much more interesting yeah. um, I think whenever you know the more one-dimensional character is obviously the less interesting it is um, I think any kind of unfiltered unreflected upon machismo is toxic and uninteresting yeah. uh, and it's the vulnerability of characters that allows us to relate to them I actually think in the next decade there's a lot of really great work to be done in helping us all in our lives reflect on what kind of roles we find ourselves being expected to act out in our lives yeah. and the harm that that can do both to others and ourselves yeah. and the different ways of being that might be available to us as men and women and non-binary people yeah. uh, to get through life in a better way together right. Right. and uh, maybe this is the sense in which you uh, you know like transcendently great works of entertainment <laughs> can help us in that kind of impact movie yeah serious game sure, kind of way sure. um, uh, but uh, so yeah I, 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 then I think you know also I think that the Uncharted games the, it's, speaking about the origin of the Uncharted games they're also um, kind of a, um, a love song to human culture um, because obviously they're not just about jungles, they're about finding um, ancient temples and jungles. Yeah, they're yeah. about finding a, a World War II U-boat right. uh, in a place where no U-boat should be uh, in a jungle. Right, um, right. They're about the, uh, the, 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 the craft that leads to the great monuments of human culture right um, these ancient uh, buildings these ancient artifacts yeah uh, I mean and they're about human ingenuity and curiosity right. and puzzlement and wonder yeah right the, tr the kind of that that capacity we all have for seeing something and wanting needing to figure out what is up with that right I mean I'll, I'll go into the the flip side of that because I've you know I've played um, 
I, I haven't played all the Uncharted games in all their entirety, but I've played up through Uncharted 4, and mm-hmm. I, I, I played through to the end of Lost Legacy most mm-hmm. recently. Um, I mean, what do you think about the flip side of that? Because I, you know, I, I feel like there's there's that um, undercurrent that I felt even yeah through Lost Legacy, which is like a really cool thing because it's like these two women that are going on this very you know kind of classic adventure together, but they're certainly. How much did you think about or talk about, or how much was it more in retrospect the kind of like colonialist, you know, mm-hmm. like white guy going into ancient sacred sites and busting shit up and throwing mm-hmm. grenades and stealing stuff yeah. side yeah, of it, you yeah. know? I don't know. Was that con- like did you did you think about that or wrestle with that? I mean, how much of that was in the in the space when you were kind of navigating what those games were? We thought about it and talked about it a lot from the very beginning because obviously part of the um, uh, unhappy legacy of this kind of uh, adventure fiction is that it's colonialist. Yeah. Right? So yeah. People from the West going to places that have been colonized, colonized and often plundering them of their riches. So um, we did uh, uh, think about it and talk about it. And to be honest, we didn't always get it right. Um, I mean, some of it is baked into the genre that you were working in. You yeah, know, but I think like you can subvert, if, you, if you're reflective, I think you can subvert any sure. genre, right? Sure. You can work around. Uh, and we, and by and large, that's what we were trying to do. Um, we didn't want to come at social issues in a kind of head-on way. Uh, 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 you know, we were aware that we were making uh, entertainment. We all had our political axes, but we didn't really want to grind them publicly. We didn't think that was what our audience was signed up for. Yeah. Um, but we did try to um, uh, avoid falling into any pits of being kind of un reflectively colonialist yeah. and like I said I don't think we always got it right I yeah. think um, Nathan Drake still ends up with a lot of a lot of indigenous artifacts in his pockets at the end of those games. He, he does, <laughs> although he usually loses the treasure at That's the end true. of the game. That's true. Maybe he gets his just desserts. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. In the first Uncharted game, the protagonists uh, were overwhelmingly white. And while we had tried to depict the enemies as being a sort of a ethnically and culturally diverse group of, of people uh, from yeah. around the world, um, uh, I don't think we did a very good job of... Uh, representing um, uh, representing that and uh, and it had a kind of bad tone well and but and and it feels to me like you had some internal reaction to that with uncharted 2 like it, it felt yeah. like more of uncharted 2 was consciously about the people who are actually from the places and who they were and, and how exactly. Nathan Drake's actions impacted them and, and all of that. And that's played out across the rest of the series, yeah. you know, the, the diversity of the cast of protagonists and antagonists kind of reflects the places yeah. um, that the games take yeah. us to. So your role on the... On both, on, on so okay. So for people that I don't, I didn't introduce you in a lot of detail at the beginning, right? But um, you were the the game director or the design director. No, I was the uh, lead game designer for the first Uncharted game, yeah. and I was the co-lead game designer with uh, Neil Druckmann for Uncharted Two. Yeah. Uh, and then I uh, was co-lead game designer with my friend Jacob Minkoff for Uncharted 3. Okay. Were, were you there all the way through Uncharted 3? I was, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay. I, I, had, I put it in my head that you were Uncharted 2 and then... No, 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 okay. no. I feel very lucky that I got to work on, uh, on, on three, the entire three-game sequence. Original trilogy. Uh, it's yeah. my second three-game sequence <laughs> after Soul Reaver. Right. And I've always felt that anyone signing up for a creative endeavor should do whatever they can 
to see it through until the very end. I've been on a number of teams where key people have left partway through yeah, yeah. Uh, production, and it's just a, a bad scene all around. Yeah, it's um, the continuity of of influence is definitely valuable. It's hugely sure. important, I think. Yeah, yeah to yeah. the coherence of the the thing that was right. Lost. So you worked on all three of those games. So that was a that, that, I mean, that was what six years or more, something like that. That was a because gosh. Yeah, because each of those games was a couple few years to to get done, uh, right? Uh, I guess. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So that was a so that was a, a big part of your part yeah. of your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I did uh, six months worth of work on Uncharted Four as well. Oh, okay, really? Okay, so you were at Naughty Dog from two thousand four to what two thousand twelve? Two thousand twelve. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, what was it? You know, what what do you remember from? From taking that first game from, you know, conception to the the release of the first title where it mm-hmm. was very much a new thing for Naughty Dog and a new, you know, kind of flagship IP for Sony and, and you know, showcase for the PlayStation 3 and all that, that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't know. Oh, well, I mean, it's always great shipping a game. It's always really satisfying. Uh, that sort of... Uh, um, uh, the camaraderie of the team, the feeling of accomplishment you get at the end of making something new, right? And right. putting it out in the world, and especially when it's warmly received, is a really good feeling. Yeah. It's not an uncomplicated feeling, though, right? I right. think part of uh, um, the fe- my feeling, certainly, I can't uh, speak for all my teammates, at the end of the first Uncharted game was like, phew, we got away with it. Because <laughs> it was really uh, challenging. I think, yeah. you know, the first game in a series the first game on a new platform is always a, a big challenge right. and, and as, as um, I and other people have spoken about you know that first Uncharted game was a real struggle yeah um, yeah. uh, and um, and then you know there's always uh, there's a kind of bittersweet feeling when you ship a game I don't know if you ever get kind of uh, uh, post uh, Goldmaster blues I think it's really common I think it is um, common yeah you know I, I've been I think it's part of my own personal syndrome that, like, a lot of my career has been very serialized. Yeah, you know, like, I I shipped Bioshock 2, and then before the game came out, I was already working on the DLC. Yeah. And then we shipped the DLC, and then, like, I went to Irrational, like, mm. immediately afterwards. Right, right. And then I was working on Infinite. I didn't, you know, I left before it was finished. Yeah. Um, and then we made Gone Home in our basement, and, like, it... It came out and was you know really good for us, and then I like did a lot of traveling and stuff. So right. so I, so I, I I didn't really hit the like yeah the like I know that feeling, and mm-hmm. I, and I've definitely felt pieces of it, but I've been very lucky to have through whatever machinations mm-hmm. Uh, of mm-hmm. my own schedule and stuff to have not been in that place where you really are just sort of like in that you know in that empty feeling for like for in a serious way and I just like to mention it as often as I can on the record as well because I think that it's something that uh, often people who haven't made a large number of big projects uh, can be blindsided by and be unprepared by and certainly you can salve it uh, uh, with some Mm self-care and some you know making sure that you have enough community around you trying to get out of familiar surroundings is really really valuable too I think I, I think just being being in the place where you used to be mm-hmm. having a purpose that's gone now yeah. is really hard. Yeah. But going visiting friends, you know, in another city or whatever is is a big, I think, 
mental shift that's actually really valuable. The first Soul River game had been an enormous challenge yeah. and uh, almost a three-year project for me, longer for some people. Yeah. And uh, I um, had a short sabbatical from Crystal Dynamics and went traveling for three months uh, all around the world. Yeah. And uh, uh, that was hugely restorative. It's very different. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, very different. Yeah. So, but I mean, at the end of the first Uncharted game, um, there wasn't too much of an opportunity for uh, for the Blues because we really rolled straight into Uncharted Two. Yeah. Uh, and uh, clearly we were going to make a sequel to the game. Right. We had a ton of ideas. So whenever my students are frustrated with me for insisting that they scope down their projects and take out <laughs> some of the beloved features, yeah. who, the ideas for which they've fallen in love with. Whenever, yeah. you know, I use the phrase, kill your darlings a lot, the old right. writer's workshop thing. Yeah. I encourage them to begin to conceive of their designer's imaginary back pocket. The place where you stick all of the great ideas that you've had uh, that you have been unable to use on the current project right. to squirrel them away for future projects. Yeah. And I think that was part of why we were so primed for Uncharted 2. There was so much stuff that we had wanted to do, some of which we had put into Uncharted 1 and then cut right. quite late in the project. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that meant that we were so primed and ready to begin work on that project. Something that I think is really inspiring about um, your work and your outlook and why your involvement with GDC is really you know, uh, important, um, kind of going in both directions, is I know that, um, you, I think you did a talk at GDC about how you know, small indie games and art games had influenced your thinking on one of the biggest, you know, AAA right. um, franchises. And there's, I, I remember one of the, the things that you talked about was how Tale of Tales, The Graveyard, uh, yeah. influenced your thinking on mm -hmm. the, like, non-combat, like, Tibet village scene in right. Uncharted 2. And things like that where, yeah. you know, you, I think were looking outside of just what your own studio did or what the kind of like competitive research, what are other third person action adventure games mm -hmm. doing to just what are what are games doing and what right. are small games and weird games and unrelated games doing mm -hmm. that could make you think differently about what you're doing. Right, right. Either in direct or or, or less direct ways. Uh, and um, I mean, the, uh, yes, I, I have always uh, loved to tell that story because I've always seen, you know, the avant-garde, the experimental, kind of fringy creativity as being um, almost, uh, so totally rich with potential for informing and reinvigorating the mainstream yeah. uh, in any given form, whether it's, you know, uh, the novel or cinema. Uh, and so it was a very happy confluence of events um, uh, that led me to play uh, this game by the Belgian-American art game developers Tale of Tales, The Graveyard, which is a short game about an elderly woman walking through a church graveyard. Uh, it's the core mechanics are really just traversal. There's, there's some narrative as well. Uh, it's yeah, kind a of song a, a musical game yeah. at the end, yeah. Um, and, uh, and there was this uh, sequence in Uncharted 2 that I didn't come up with the original idea for. I think it was one of Amy, Bruce, or Neil okay. uh, uh, for a uh, sequence of gameplay that had almost no gameplay in it right and yeah. uh, you know being in a being in a place yeah uh, right and then you know 2000 uh, in the late 
2000 aughts. This was a really radical idea. Uh, um, Our notion was that by letting the action drop out for a few moments, uh, uh, it would it would uh, intensify the next uh, sequence of play. Yeah. This is another Bruce Block idea, right? right. Contrast and affinity. Um, if the game ramps up to intensity 11 and stays there for 12 hours, it's going to start to feel like intensity 3 right. by halfway right. through. But if you contrast low and high intensity, uh, then the lows have the potential to feel super impactful and rich with meaning, and the highs will seem even higher. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, um, I had recently played this game. As soon as I heard about the idea for the sequence of gameplay, I was like, can I have that, please? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then ran around the company um, kind of uh, uh, talking uh, fellow uh, designers uh, into helping me conceive of the ideas for it. Uh, talking the artists and the animators and the audio folks into supporting this short sequence of gameplay. It's like, you know, just a couple of minutes if you just blaze through the middle of it to make it as rich with content as we possibly could. Because the interesting thing... To invite you to spend more than just the two minutes in it if you're interested. If you want to, but even if you only want to spend two minutes to make sure it's a damn good two minutes. Right. right? This is an interesting thing about Tale of Tales. Um... Uh, uh, they had already made a game um, inspired by Oscar Wilde's take on the story of uh, Salome. Mm. Um, uh, and for this, for that game, they'd worked with um, some well-known Japanese game artists. Oh, really? Uh, who made them these incredibly wonderful, rich character models? And the graveyard. Uh, looks like a triple-A game. Um, they understood that by pumping the fidelity up to 11 in yeah. terms of uh, graphics and audio, that that would do something almost alchemical in terms of the literary meaning of the piece. Right. And I think I understood that well enough to know that the short sequence of gameplay had to have as much stuff in there as we could possibly cram in. Yeah. And we did, uh, we called them experiential sequences because the focus is not on the mechanical aspects of the gameplay, but just purely on the kind of sensory and narrative experience that you have in, right. in that part of the game. And we did a lot more of the same kind of stuff in Uncharted 3, and they did even more of that in Uncharted 4. Right. And, and Uncharted 4, yeah, there were, there were sequences that felt very, you know, influenced by, you know, the 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 the, uh, the walking simulator. You know, uh, like right. it's being about yes. examining objects. And, yeah. Uh, you know, putting in the the like firewatch hands. You know, examine mechanics and stuff. But it, it's so cool seeing, even within one series, this ongoing dialogue between huge productions and art productions and right. smaller to mid-sized productions back into you know how they all are talking to each other about technique and, and potential mechanics and stuff. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but I want to seize this uh, opportunity to tell a bit of the story that I haven't, um, at least very often, told in public before. Okay. Um, that might give the lie to uh, the idea that there's this type of developer and that type of developer, people who love you know AAA action games and people who love arty avant-garde games because actually the person who showed me the graveyard was my good friend Robert Cogburn who uh, 
we had recently hired on at this, at this time to Naughty Dog to work as a multiplayer designer. Yeah. And he's now head of the multiplayer part of the team uh, at Naughty Dog. Uh, Robert was relatively recently out of school and had had a lot of exposure to art games. And so even though he's this guy, right, who has made, uh, who is making the most action-y, the most kind of visceral <laughs> parts of the game, yeah. you know, he brings me this beautiful, sensitive art game yeah. uh, for me to see. So I just want to uh, <laughs> thank him. Uh, thanks, Coggy, uh, here and now for uh, showing me that. He, it, I think it was Robert, uh, there were a few other people around that time, and it was Robert, more than anyone, who was pointing me at, towards this emerging world of art games and experimental games. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's a great guy. Um, so, yeah, what, what you may be hearing in the background is... Um, my, my Airbnb is right off of Pershing Square in uh, L.A., and apparently at noon today, a uh, Trump-Pence protest started. Yeah, which you're is... hearing the sound of the resistance, <laughs> uh, of which I wholly approve. <laughs> Uh, but it, it can make it harder to record. Uh, ah, we'll be fine. We'll right be fine. So just if you're hearing that, um, that you're, you're, you're experiencing uh, the socio-political uh, climate, climate in Los Angeles of, of in 2017. LA yeah. um, in the background. Uh, um, and I'm glad they're out there. I might go and uh, 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 chant yeah. slogans with them for I, a little bit. I, I won't keep chat. you too long so that you can get down there. Yeah. Um, okay, so... Uh, so you know you, you you worked on the full Uncharted series or the, the first three Uncharted games, and, and you said you, you put some work into Uncharted Four yep, as well, just a little bit. Yeah. So um, you know now you are in, you're you're at um, USC. Yes. Um, so what what was what what took you from Naughty Dog to academia? You know what was. Well, how were you feeling? What were you thinking about? You know, when you were kind of in the the later months or years mm. of, mm -hmm. of being at Naughty Dog, and what made you you want to to, to go in the direction you've gone now? So um, I'd started volunteering at USC uh, almost as soon as I started working at Naughty Dog, uh, visiting to give talks about the way that Naughty Dog make their games, uh, and uh, you know I did kind of seminar versions of some of my GDC talks, and I became a mentor to students in the MFA program. Uh, in their in the third year of our MFA program, um, the students spend the whole year working on a single project, and they have to get a couple of academic mentors and a mentor from industry. So that was me okay. for, th for three years uh, across the course of um, probably, uh, yeah, all three Uncharted games. I yeah. would use kind of the, I wouldn't mentor anyone in the shipping year of an Uncharted game. I would use the other years to, uh, um, to mentor people. Right. And, uh, you know, very often the industry mentors might meet with the students a handful of times across the course of the year. I didn't really realize this. And so I would meet every week on Saturday <laughs> at noon with my mentee near, near my house at a at a, a cafe in uh, West LA yeah. uh, and I would act as an executive producer for these folks and I would you know uh, tell them about the systems of milestones that we used you know the, the pre-production and full production phases that we used uh, at Naughty Dog at Crystal yeah. as well yeah. the kind of alpha beta gold milestones that we use and I would really just kind of hold them accountable around their milestones so, so because it was 
was my belief that this would lead to a better outcome in their projects. Yeah. And uh, I think it was the kind of the vigor, uh, almost the overactive vigor with which <laughs> I approached these mentorships that made my friend Tracy Fullerton, who at the time uh, was the chair of the division, the Interactive Media and Games Division yeah. uh, of the School of Cinematic Arts that I teach in, that made her think that I might be okay as a teacher. Okay. And so, um, I mean, I was having a really great time at Naughty Dog, uh, and obviously Uncharted 2 had been an incredible success. It had been a very satisfying creative endeavor. Um, Uncharted 3 was similarly really enjoyable, lovely group of people to yeah. work with. Um, um, but during um, the time of the transition from Uncharted 1 to Uncharted 2, I'd also gotten involved in indie the yeah. International Festival of Independent Games, of course. Yeah, which is uh, here as well. Uh, yeah, which uh, uh, is has been based for a long time in uh, uh, first Culver City, kind of a, um, a city within the city of Los Angeles, and which this year was in uh, Little Tokyo. Yeah just down the road from us. Uh, and um, this kind of represented my interest in and love of indie gaming and uh, the emerging art game scene. Uh, and that kind of tracked my interest, right, in indie music in the 80s. Sure, uh, yeah. And, you know, weird avant-garde electronic music and in indie filmmaking. Sure. Uh, yeah. I was yeah. very, very excited about uh, 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 what was happening. You know, because I'd entered the industry envisioning games as this emerging art form, obviously with a certain kind of set of tastes. So 10, 15 years later, when it starts happening, I was extremely excited. <laughs> and, uh, and so I remember quite vividly um, where I perceived the fork in the road ahead of me. It was halfway through the creation of Uncharted 3. I was ironing a shirt, getting ready to go to a friend's wedding <laughs> during Indicade in a friend's hotel room. And I was like, you know, I could easily just keep working at Naughty Dog for either the rest of my life or until they fire me. Right. Uh, and, uh, and that would be immensely satisfying. Or I could kind of seize an impulse to do with the atmosphere of being here at Indiecade, of loving all of these games that are coming out, of loving to talk about games in an expanded way, in the way that people who love film studies talk about film. And, uh, uh, and maybe there's something different that I could do. So um, I decided almost there and then uh, that I wanted to try something new. Yeah. And I began to talk to friends about it. A friend round about that time, I don't recall who, had introduced me to the idea that they had a kind of uh, uh, a group of board members of their life, <laughs> like you know, senior advisors yeah. who you could go to to check in with when you were faced with a big decision as a, the kind of CEO of your life. <laughs> and, uh, and so I reached out to a bunch of friends and got various perspectives about what it would be like to become an indie game developer or to become an academic or to become some hybrid of the two. Yeah. And one of the people I spoke to was uh, Tracy Fullerton. Right. And to make a long-ish long story short, it turned out that there was the possibility that I could join USC. Yeah. Uh, the School of Cinematic Arts has a tradition of hiring in filmmakers okay. um, to become teachers um, and it's an easier proposition when the filmmakers movies have become well known and yeah. have won some number of awards sure. so I've always felt incredibly indebted to everyone that I've ever worked with um, and of course everyone at Naughty Dog that I worked with on the Uncharted games um, because 
because clearly they were the folks whose efforts indirectly made this change of direction of career possible for me. Yeah, yeah. So now you are you're 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 teaching students. Uh, yeah. You're teaching people right. that are that yeah. are trying to understand what their role in the industry might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what is what are your courses like at USC? So you mean my, the courses that I teach, yeah. or the courses more generally? I, I don't. I mean, what? Yeah. What do you do? Like, if someone is is learning from you at USC, what is that experience like? Well, of course, my job title has always been game designer, and so first and foremost, I uh, think of myself as a as, as a designer, a, as a maker of things, and of course, those things could have different kinds of goals. I think often um, when we're approached with a design challenge, a design problem, we might be seeking to um, climb multiple hills to solve multiple problems at once. I uh, love. Um, artworks, cultural works that are storytelling uh, and richly interactive that present us with interesting meaningful choices and ways for us to both express ourselves and maybe ways to advance our skills in certain areas. Yeah. Um, and I'm interested in distinct, unique, creative voices. Yeah. I am interested in the possible social impact of the media that we uh, uh, that we enjoy. I'm interested in entertainment, right? I right. Uh, I have a sweet tooth for pop music. <laughs> right. You know, even when I was listening to um, the Jesus and Mary Chain or some other like weird cacophonous indie band in the late '80s, I was also always listening to Madonna right. and uh, electronic dance music. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, I think there's something that, you know, I I think can, can get lost easily, which is that entertainment has its own virtue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think it can be, like, I think that, that there can be a self-consciousness that can lead people to sort of say, like, well, this, you know, this thing, this thing that I make, you know, is educational. Yeah. Or, or has this other virtue, too. Like, right. yeah, it's just this or just that. or mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like, it, right. it's enriching people in some way. And I'm like... Also, just giving people good entertainment that gives them something to enjoy that gives is, them is in and of pleasure. itself valuable. Right. Everyone yeah. needs time that they aren't working or learning mm-hmm. or otherwise doing anything except, you know, getting their mind off of things. So. And uh, I think that sometimes we find ourselves in a cultural setting where there's a subtle idea that pleasure is bad, yeah. that it could be unhealthy, and certainly... Or that, or that it's not worthwhile, that it's not as worthy as right. other things. And I think that's a mistake. I think an important part of the emotional and intellectual well-being of human beings is that they're allowed to enjoy the things that they enjoy. So yeah, I've always felt that entertainment is a worthy goal. Yeah. yeah. And of course, you know, I'm interested in meaningfulness in art. Right. I guess that, you know, it's the existentialist in me, right? Uh, even as a tiny child, I found myself equally delighted by this world that I find myself in and also often horrified by it. The kind of existential vertigo that comes with understanding that you are mortal and that everyone around you is mortal and the struggle for intimacy, the possibility of emotional distance opening up with the people that we care about. These are the essential struggles of what it means to be a person and I think that an important part of all kinds of art, not just narrative art, is looking at those issues. And so, Anyway, so I have this 
kind of, you know, these things are in my areas of interest, at least, and sometimes expertise as a designer. And that's part of what I have to bring to my yeah. students. Uh, so are, in your course, in your classes, are students producing games or are you more critical studies? No, they, in our program is very practice focused. So okay. almost from the beginning of their studies, our students are making creative works. We're big believers that there is great value in theory and kind of uh, reading and, yeah. you know, a kind of critical studies approach to games uh, and other kinds of related interactive media but the making things is one of the best ways to learn about the yeah. nature of those things. So you have students that are making things and they're bringing you prototypes and builds and, and you're talking through what they could be doing with them and all that. And all of the classes, nearly all the classes that I've ever taught at USC are about making things and usually with some kind of theoretical priming, you know, we'll do a reading, we'll have a discussion about it and then we'll go away and make something, bring it back into class, play test it. Yeah. Um, Tracy Fullerton uh, coined the term play-centric game design yeah. in her book Game Design Workshop, which is now one of the kind of de facto um, uh, uh, game design texts used in universities all around the world. Well, and also it's a recurring um, workshop that's given at GDC every year. Uh, yes. I, yeah. I, I did the game design workshop sessions, the, um, the GDC before I started my first design job. It's actually run by a different group, the GDC Game Design Workshop. But, is but it definitely the. Um, is it? I know. I think it's actually oh, they're not, they're not, they're not directly related. Yeah, okay. Yeah. okay. It's, it's the MDA folks actually. It's yeah. Robin Hunkey, yeah. Mark LeBlanc, uh, and I think it was Mark who originated the GDC Game Design Workshop. Okay. But clearly they are cut from the same cloth. Yeah. You know, Tracy and those folks have been part of the same quite close-knit creative right. community back in the day. These ideas were bubbling up across the field. You know, they were coming up in um, as far back as microprose. I organized a, a playtest uh, for F-15 Strike Eagle uh, all the way back then, a kind of friends and family playtest, as we would now know today, yeah. to try and see if there was anything that we were overlooking, to see if the interfaces were usable, to see if people were having fun in the game. So I think that a bunch of us understood early on that we couldn't do what filmmakers often do, which is to plan and then execute and then cut and refine and then ship. But we had to have people in the mix giving us feedback from the very early stages. Yeah. So that's a yeah a big part of. And what now we you do get to see. be kind of the first line of defense for that with your students. Your students are making things, and you get to right. be their first play tester. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so as well as all of the, the this kind of play centric design aspect of things. Which gives me a lot of latitude because obviously I've worked uh, mainly on a certain kind of game, third person character action games with a few other exceptions in my career. But my students make all kinds of work and we see games as a very big umbrella yeah. um, at, uh, um, at USC, um, you know, with all kinds of possible work from action games, multiplayer games, esports, all the way up to art games, narrative games, yeah, text games, simulators, yeah. text games, yeah. Exactly, uh, and uh, and even things that you know some people might be incli incl inclined not to call games. We will welcome under yeah, the games more of like a, kinds of interactive, interactive tool or a, yeah. a, a play space. Yeah, those sort of, yeah, yeah non, non digital sure. things as well. Oh, you know, sure. Board games and card games oh, really? are a big part of our practice. Absolutely, cool. and increasingly things like uh, interactive theater, live action role playing, things oh, that wow. might not even use any kind of digital technology to create an interesting uh, interactive. Interactive experience, huh. uh, 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 what we uh, 
what we do. That's so cool. But the other thing that I did uh, a little bit of uh, in my time before Naughty Dog, um, and increasingly as a formal part of my role at Naughty Dog, was production. And this is something that I care about very much. And this comes back to my thinking about crunch and about the difference between working hard in a healthy way in pursuit of excellence and working in a kind of uncontrolled, unhealthy way. Um, I was very lucky at Naughty Dog that uh, I, one of my key mentors there had uh, been a hero of mine for a long time, my friend Mark Cerny, yeah. um, who is now best known, I guess, for his work in the creation of the PlayStation 4. Um, but uh, was a talented uh, game designer uh, and game programmer and hardware architect, uh, going all the way back to one of his first games, at least, Marble Madness. If you right. remember that yeah. classic coin yep. op. And Mark went on to work at Sega. He was an executive producer at Universal Interactive when he kind of took um, Andy Gavin and Jason Rubin, the co-founders of Naughty Dog, under his wing and helped them in the creation of the Crash Bandicoot games. And Mark continued to work with Naughty Dog um, right up to the Uncharted games and often a kind of advisorial capacity. Um, but um, uh, Mark... Uh, along with Michael John, who I mentioned earlier, great game designer, worked on Spyro and uh, the, the Daxter game, uh, originated this thing called Method, which emerged round about the same time as Agile development, and is a very kind of agile flavored approach to making games in a structured sequence of stages. Uh, if you want to learn more about this, listeners, you can Google um, Mark Cerny, which is C-E-R-N-Y, Dice, and you'll find a great uh, talk, I think from 2002, by Mark about this method. At the, at the Dice Conference. At the Dice Conference, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah the, the conference of the uh, Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences that takes place each year. And um, uh, like I say, it emerged at the same time as Agile. It was the kind of the production method that was adopted and, and modified in some ways by Naughty Dog, by Insomniac to make their games, and which is very convergent with everything that we know about agile development and you know uh, keeping a kind of open and active mind about the uh, um, the emerging nature of your game's design and the timeline along which is, it's evolving by trying to stay focused on working software as the best representative and the best communicator about what it is that we're trying to make so uh, this is where the concept of the vertical slice comes from the early demo that is yeah. highly polished that kind of shows us on the team to each other what it is that we're trying to make and that we can use to show other people, publishers and ultimately members of the public of what it is that we're trying to make. Yeah. Again And again, so that we can track how long it takes us to make it, so that we can get a better handle on those tricky middle parts of development where we're trying to say, well, do we have time to make five levels or six <laughs> levels? Yeah. Uh, and this is now a major part of what I teach at USC. In fact, I would like to think, I would hope that it's been my major contribution to the curriculum. Um, these ideas were already present in the in the curriculum in the USC Games program, but I um, really uh, worked very hard to cement these ideas of. Um, best um, production working practices in place right across the program so that we now teach these techniques to um, undergrads uh, from all parts of our program which includes both the cinema school and the engineering school uh, and to our graduate students as yeah. well and you know I hope that that's a place where 
I can make an impact, where I can help a new generation of game makers to lead more sustainable lives, right? right? To so actually build things in, in ways that have that, that sustainability to them or, or in a healthier actual process, being process focused. So yeah. that they will be able to have the kind of 50, 60 year careers that filmmakers enjoy, right? right. Yeah. I mean, imagine, you know, it's already the case that we have um, great game designers who've been pursuing their practice for many decades and are still making incredible work. Imagine what it's going to be like in another 30 or 50 years when we have this accumulated body of knowledge, the accumulated craft that gets handed down from one mentor to the next mentee and on and on. And the kinds of experiences, rich artistic experiences, wonderfully uh, amusing, diverting entertainment experiences that um, yeah can help people get through their lives, that can help shape the world. Yeah. Well, you're doing your best to, to help make it happen. I mean, you know, we're you, all just doing our best. Yeah, but you've contributed to so much, and I think that it's that it's really cool that you're kind of committing fully to to the next generation of game developers with what you're doing at USC. So, well, thanks, Steve. Um, and thank you for for spending part of your your day talking to me about everything that you've done so far. And I mean, we'll look forward to to what you and what your students do <laughs> in the, in the future. I didn't even talk about my weird virtual reality game that I'm making. I'll, I'll save that for another time. All right. <laughs> what's, the, what's the pitch? What's the elevator pitch? Um, the elevator pitch for my game, which has the most pretentious name <laughs> that I could possibly think of to give a VR game. Uh, it's, the game is called Phenomenology. Hmm. Uh, and I have a degree in physics and philosophy. Okay. Uh, and phenomenology is a concept from, from philosophy. <laughs> uh, the game is uh, James Turrell uh, meets Monty Python in <laughs> VR and has a lively discussion about uh, the nature of perception and maybe uh, uh, it's kind of a satire on the nature of VR as well. <laughs> is, it, is, is there a way for people to play this or will there yeah, be? Yeah, I'm going to ship the game on Oculus uh, okay. as a lead platform in 2018 and All hopefully right. on a bunch of other platforms uh, 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 either later in the year or the next year. Alright, well if you want to see what happens to an Uncharted designer when they go off in academia <laughs> and lose their shit <laughs> then uh, <laughs> yeah, go, Google that up, see where it's at keep an eye on it um, yeah. and, uh, and, and thank you so much Richard, it's been great talking to you. It's been a real pleasure Steve, thanks so much for the conversation today, I really enjoyed it. Thanks.